0: Welcome to the Good Chemistry Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Giacomis, and my guest today is Dr. Terrence Deacon. Terrence is a professor of anthropology and cognitive science at the University of California, Berkeley, and his research has combined human evolutionary biology and neuroscience with the aim of understanding the evolution of human cognition. His research has extended all the way from experimental work in molecular and developmental neurobiology to theoretical work in the study of semiotic processes underlying human and animal cognition, especially language. He's the author of several books, including The Symbolic Species, The Co-Evolution of Language and the Brain, which was published almost 25 years ago and has been highly influential in the field of language evolution. Most of our conversation centered around ideas from that book, including what human language is and how it's different from other forms of animal communication, developmental aspects of language acquisition in children, and key aspects of human brain evolution that may have supported the evolution of language. A lot of the discussion centered around symbolic cognition, which Terence believes was the key innovation that actually allowed language to develop in the human lineage. As always, if you enjoy this content, please like, share, and subscribe. You can subscribe to the video podcast on YouTube and download the audio version at any podcast directory, such as Apple or Spotify. You can also sign up at goodchemistry.locals.com using the promo code GREATCHEM, G-R-E-A-T-C-H-E-M. And that's a place where you can communicate both with me and other listeners of the podcast. You can ask questions and see upcoming guests and other content related to the podcast. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist. An all-natural canvas company specializing in dose-controlled canvas products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Terence Deacon. Professor Terence Deacon, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you. Hi. Can you
0: briefly tell everyone where you are and what you do scientifically?
1: So I'm at the University of California in Berkeley. Uh, I am a biological anthropologist by training, uh, though much of my work has been in the neurosciences. Uh, I got my PhD from Harvard uh, in biological anthropology, though I worked um, in the neurosciences at MIT during most of that time. And it was an anatomical background. Uh, In fact, all through the 1990s, I was doing neuroscience research mostly associated with fetal neural transplantation. Uh, It was associated both with medical uh, procedures associated with uh, using transplantation to maybe repair uh, neurological damage. Uh, Some of it was even uh, led to human trials. Uh, But much of my work was interested in using cross species fetal neural transplantation to ask questions also about species differences and how uh, the brain develops its connectivity. That is how neurons find their targets, so to speak.
0: And you've done a lot of work and a lot of thinking around the origins of human language, which is a subject that has fascinated me for a long time. I think it fascinates a lot of people because in many ways, language is arguably like the quintessential human human capability that we have that makes us special in some sense. And so I want to start out just by asking, and for those that don't know, so you have a book called The Symbolic Species with the subtitle, The Co-Evolution of Language in the Brain. It was written approximately 25 years ago, and I've gone through it a number of times. Um, I've got it right here. It's one of those books that I have filled with so many highlights that they're almost counterproductive at this point. (laughs) But can you just start out by describing for people, what is language? How would you define it? And more importantly, what are the key ways that human language differs from other forms of animal communication?
1: In fact, the question is a good one because I think it's not having a clear answer to that has blocked our thinking about this and blocked, I think, careful research into it. Um, So if you think about language as just just vocalization, just vocal communication. Lots of species engage in that. If you think of language as communicating about something that is outside of the body, many species do that as well. Um, com- also communicating about you know, states of the body, like am I afraid, am I aggressive, am I interested in sexuality, those sorts of things. Lots of species do that. Uh, that's clearly not what language is special for. Um, I titled my book, The Symbolic Species, in part because I argued that in effect, there's something special about the way language represents things in the world and represents our own states and our own beliefs and our own intent intentions. Uh, and that difference I think is also troublesome because the word symbol has been used in so many different ways. It's sometimes been used as just sort of the, the arbitrary term we use for any sign anything that stands for something else. Uh, But uh, I think mostly we use it to talk about uh, a very special kind of communication, which uh, sometimes is described as arbitrary representations. Whereas uh, representations, things that communicate by virtue of likeness called icons, things that communicate by virtue of their sort of symptomatic correlation with things, we call indices. Um, symbols lack those things most of the time. Uh, and it's not just that they're conventional, not just that they're set up uh, by agreement sort of between individuals, whether they're different organisms or different people, but it's that both their form and their way of referring are conventional. Uh, that is they're set up by virtue of some kind of shared interpretive agreement uh, and it makes them much, much, much different. And as a result, um, uh, language refers to things in the world in a very different way. And because they're not connected directly with things in the world, uh, they can refer by virtue of things that have happened in the past, things that are possible, um, things that are impossible, things that don't exist. We can communicate about that. Whereas if if the way of communicating is always associated with something that has the same form. Or is somehow physically related to something else? You're sort of stuck in the present, it makes it hard to communicate about things that are in the past or could happen in the future. Hmm. So you mentioned these three different categories
0: of representation: uh, icons, indices, and symbols. Can you unpack, maybe give some examples of what icons and indices are, as distinguished from symbols?
1: Right. So, and and, and I want to be clear that you can have conventionalized icons and conventionalized symbols. We have them all the time. So a conventionalized icon might be that sort of smiling face we make with um, colons and parentheses in our text. It's it's made with components that are symbolic, but it communicates by virtue of its similarity to something, to a smiling face. Um, but a lot of perception is iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, we recognize things because they share form. Uh, and one thing can stand for something else by virtue of shared form, including, including, for example, the smiling face. Uh, that's a, an icon. And so, in a sense, it's the simplest and probably the most common form of, of representations. All, all perception works this way. Uh, indices are things that represent other things by virtue of their connection to them in some form or other. So uh, a a simple form might be that uh, a hiccup or a cough uh, communicates something about my state because it's physically associated with it. Uh, uh, The smoke that we might smell uh, is associated with something burning, uh, and therefore it communicates to us by virtue of its correlation with something that burns. We can use, uh, I like to use the example of smoke for other reasons, because, you know, smoke looks like clouds. So it's sort of iconic of clouds. But smoke can also indicate an index, can indicate fire, indicate something burning. But I I like to think about the smoke that comes out of the Vatican um, during the choice of of a pope. Uh, If it's dark smoke, it means that no, a decision has not been made yet, that votes have been taken, but it's not final. But if it's white smoke, uh, somehow, uh, and now it says the choice is finished. Um, Now it's, it's playing a symbolic role. It indicates at the same time as it symbolizes. And so this is another interesting feature that things that are symbols will also have oftentimes iconic features. They're like other things. Indexical features are correlated with other things, but they also require something else in interpretation. The thing itself is not enough. Its correlations are not enough. Its likenesses are not enough. You need some sort of agreed-upon interpretation, shared interpretive features. And that's the difference between this white smoke and the dark smoke uh, coming up from the Vatican. Symbols, on the other hand, um, uh, that which is that feature of the difference between the light smoke and the dark smoke. Notice how much more is there. Looking just at the smoke, you all of the information carried by smoke itself, whether light or dark smoke um, is not sufficient. There is nothing in that sign vehicle that provides um, the symbolic meaning. That's something that is in the interpreters alone. I see.
0: So icons refer to something because they literally look like that thing. So the smiley face emoticon that we make with a colon and a parenthesis literally looks like a smiling face. An index is something that indicates something because it's very tightly correlated with it in space and time. So smoke indicates something's burning because something's burning right now. And the smoke is always there with it. Whereas symbols have this more arbitrary quality. They don't need to necessarily directly resemble or directly correlate with something. And so they can be used to refer to things that aren't immediately present in space or time. And you talk a lot about in the book, the importance of this discontinuity that we have for thing, for words and symbols, that they don't need to be proximate in space or time or resemble in any direct way what they refer to. So can you Unpack that a little bit more and maybe also tell people who was Charles Sanders Peirce and how did he influence your thinking on this?
1: So, let's start with Charles Sanders Peirce. He was a philosopher writing at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Um, He introduced this concept. Actually, it's an older concept, but he gave it a really precise formal uh, analysis, this concept of semiotics. Or semiotic relationships or semiosis, a way to talk about a process of producing signs, semi for the classic notion of a sign, uh, like in semaphore, in, in, uh, in naval communication using uh, flags, for example, semaphores. Uh, so it refers to any kind of sign vehicle and how it communicates, any kind of representation relationship. Charles Peirce tried to formalize this. And he tried to formalize it first by using the three concepts we've just been talking about, icons, indices, and symbols, Uh, but then also trying to analyze the process of, okay, what's necessary to communicate with these and what's necessary to interpret them as meaning something. So, for example, um, many species can interpret uh, smoke in terms of the fire, in part because they've maybe had an experience of it. And smoke might be, in that sense, um, frightening or attractive, or, you know, the, the, the smell of sweat might be attractive to mosquitoes. Uh, these are things that are sort of, they tell you about the, what you might call the interpretive competence. So that, on the other hand, a, a fly is not going to be able to interpret a whole lot of things that we can interpret. Uh, a whole lot of even icons and indices that we can distinguish, but it cannot. Uh, And that's because its brain did not provide it with the interpretive competence. It can't even learn new interpretive competences. Uh, And one of the things that I've been focused on is what kind of interpretive competence is necessary to interpret symbols? And it's a very complicated question because this is, of course, what we wanna say about what's different about human brains. Why can I interpret things certain ways? And when my dog hears the same word, um, it interprets it indexically. When, it, when I say, you know, walk, my dog immediately knows that walk is associated with something that's likely to happen. Doesn't know that I'm talking about uh, this device that I cook things in. Um, doesn't know that if I'm talking about something that happened a day ago, two days ago, or might happen tomorrow. Um, it's interpreted indexically, like it's associated with something that's likely to happen right now. And so my dog gets excited about it. Um, however, we're talking about walks, and of course it has nothing to do with, with anything that's likely to happen uh, today between us, uh, or that I'm about to do in some time in the near future. I've now been able to pull it out of that sort of immediate context, uh, in part because now the word walk doesn't have that indexical association. My argument is that, for some reason, um, species other than ourselves tend to interpret words that we produce only indexically. They can't, for some reason, cross that threshold to see them as referring to things in this sort of abstract way that words like walk can refer. Yeah, and I think we'll talk
0: about this quite a bit, this idea that that symbols and and words as we use them in language don't need to refer to anything that's immediately present. And yet yet we don't extinguish their meaning. So with most animals, when you teach them to associate A and B, a word or whatever stimulus with something else, if you then present stimulus A over and over again, but it's not immediately associated in space and time with thing B, that Association will actually disintegrate, but that's not the case with words. We can think of many examples in our own use of language where we use a word perfectly fluently, and it's never or almost never associated with the thing it refers to in our own sensory experience. And yet that association never degrades. And that's very interesting.
1: Well, In the first case, the, the case with animals we're talking about, um, this basically conditioning like that mm-hmm. um, is about indexical relations it's creating an indexical relation. Now, what's interesting is that, think about a rat in a Skinner box uh, that sees a light go on, and uh, once it learns the association between lights going on, and I can push a button to get a drink of water. um, That's really an arbitrary association. There is nothing about light going on that says it's about water. But what the rat has learned is that it's correlated, the two are correlated, and it's learned an indexical relation. Now, the experimenter created that association. It's not a sort of natural association in the world, but because rats can learn, but their learning is an indexical relation. And much of learning is about indexicality. In fact, it's one of the things that that evolution has built brains to do well. Brains recognize correlations and learn them because that's how we get along in the world. We need to know what causal features linked with other causal features. Uh, and And in that respect, um, it's really well developed in other species, but that also means that, in a sense, it's kind of the opposite of what you're just describing in terms of words. Um, if things are going to be learned by virtue of correlation, you know, we want to make sure that the correlations are good and strong. Um, so, if that's how we learn, what that tells you is that learning symbols must be different. It must be different than that because it's precisely that which we don't want to have the the driver, the thing that holds words to their meanings.
0: Yeah. And, and I think we'll come back to that. So this, this idea that there's a different kind of learning necessary for forming symbolic representations. And I, I'm going to ask eventually about the, uh, you know, one of the things that's so interesting and mysterious and seductive about language is it's so complicated, it seems. And yet, We learn it so easily, but in ways that we have no conscious awareness of. And we do it at a very young age. And we're going to unpack a lot of that stuff. But first, I want to ask you, you know, what would, you know, if we were to do a thought experiment, think about the, uh, some of the original languages that were out there in humans, what might the simplest possible language imaginable look like? And is the thing that you describe in that way, I mean, could, could we look at any extant species of non-humans, like, say, cetaceans, and could that be uh, a, a simpler form of language, or, or is there still a difference there?
1: I think it's a good question. In fact, it was one of the questions that motivated me writing the book. Um, I was actually talking to kids in a classroom, uh, and I think there was like second graders or third graders, um, and I was trying to make exactly this point. Um, that humans have this thing we call language and other animals communicate. Uh, They can even communicate vocally uh, and transfer information from one to another, Um, but it's not language. And uh, a smart kid recognized the problem and said, well, you know, isn't there dog language and cat language and bee language and that sort of stuff? And I said, well, no, it's different. They, you know, for all the reasons we've just described um, and and that didn't satisfy this kid. Um, and a little time went by and then broke in this, this was the same little girl. She broke in and she said, well, okay, but they do have simple languages, right? Those are just simple languages and ours is complicated language. And I realized that, no, it's not just simple and complicated. It's not just more of them put together, more parts put together with more stuff. There isn't something like, simple grammar and syntax, not even two word, three word grammar and syntax or something like that in other species. So the question I had to ask myself was, why not? Why isn't there this sort of graded effect? Clearly, we have this graded effect in terms of our ability to articulate sounds. It's gotten probably gotten better and better over the course of our evolution, uh, whereas other species may not have quite as much of an articulate capacity but the way we use it to represent um, is really quite different. Uh, And realizing that there were no simple languages in the world, uh, now became a problem. And it became a problem for two reasons. One, that it said, look, there's something fundamentally different. That there's a a real difference, and this is the symbolic difference in my my thinking. But also it, it undermines our ability to use this standard capacity that we biologists love which is to have this sort of graded sequence mm-hmm. of some process that we can say, oh, here, it's getting better and better and better. And we can see that it's adapted to this new function. And it was just sort of this incremental mm-hmm. transition. Now, I think historically or you know, evolutionarily, there had to have been an incremental process uh, in our evolution, which we got to become better and better interpreters of this, internalized some of these capacities more effectively. Uh, But clearly, there had to be a point also when there were simple languages, Mm -hmm. something like a simple language. Uh, I think that we need to sort of get away from um, the ways we think about language now to answer that question. And I think it would probably be much more like what today we would call a ritual. Uh, Rituals have iconic and indexical features. Mm -hmm. Um, You pantomime things. You act things out. Uh, They have you know, so iconic features with what they represent. Um, uh, We might need to bring people together or people and objects together in certain ways that have indexical features. Or in fact, you know, I I might act as though I'm going to strike someone or do something which indicates something that might have happened or might happen. Um, And yet we also use ritual to communicate things that are abstract about the future. Hmm. Um, One of my favorite ones is, of course, uh, marriage rituals that we find uh, throughout the world. Uh, well, guess one of the things we have to do is to communicate to a population, and, I, and this doesn't not, not easy to see if we do it on paper, but in most parts of the world where we actually see um, ceremonies involved in this, mm. uh, what you're doing is you're communicating a sort of change in status, It's something that is not visible, you can't put your hands on, but it's going to affect social interactions on into the future. It's about something that is happening at the moment. that's changing this abstract relationship that people have to each other. Somehow the ritual has to communicate that as well. And so I think about um, early um, symbolic communication as much more like I would think about ritual today.
0: Interesting. Um, I'm going to go off script now based on what you said. And so it strikes me that you know, we can talk about icons versus indices versus symbols as separate things, but, but they're actually, you know, you often describe them in the book as having sort of this nested relationship. And what you were just describing here about a simple language, perhaps resembling something like a, you know, maybe like a religious ritual or something where stories are being told. It's not pure symbolism. It's symbolism that's tied very closely to indexical and iconic forms of reference. And I'm immediately thinking of Actually, how difficult it is, even for fully modern, fully educated humans, to think in purely symbolic terms. So, for example, you know, we could think about algebra, for example. Um, nice. Almost no one finds algebra to be completely intuitive. Most people find it to be quite hard. And a lot of people find it almost insurmountably difficult to understand. So, it almost sounded like you were. Describing the earliest forms of language that we could imagine as necessarily involving these multimodal forms of communication that use both icons, indices, and symbols, perhaps because the, you know, the pure symbolism is actually uh, probably too much for the average person, especially the average person at this time in history to, to handle and comprehend.
1: No, I think that's a good way to put it because I I, I want to think about the beginnings of this process in which. And this has to do with the co-evolution approach to this. That is, early on, um, there would not have been time for the competence to sort of have evolved. Um, we would not have had a much more sophisticated capacity than chimpanzees and bonobos do today. Um, uh, would they be capable, uh, or would close relatives to them, as maybe our distant ancestors were, um, would they be capable of some degree of this? And what would be necessary to bootstrap into it? Um, Again, recognizing how complicated it is, what the interpretive competence must be to do this. Uh, The interpretive competence requires a lot of things that are not quite the same as what are necessary for acquiring, for example, indexical relationships about cause and effect in the world, a quite different feature. And so This idea that icons, indices, and symbols are sort of linked together in some um, respects—it's actually about what I would like to call the infrastructure that you need to build symbols. You need to build symbols up using iconic and indexical means. Um, When we think about, you know, agreements coming up with a a sort of symbolic relationships by agreement, uh, we use the word convention often to talk, oftentimes to talk about this—a conventional. Habit or something like that. Um, What we recognize is that if we wouldn't have symbols capable uh, of helping us do this, if we didn't have language, how do we establish conventions? Well, we do so, and this is what rituals often do. Rituals establish conventions, oftentimes in contexts that it would be hard to do with just symbols. And one of the things about Mm. marriage, the example I just used, is that um, recognize that everybody else that's out there in your community that are close friends. Um, there's gonna be some sexual tensions. There's gonna be obligations that have to change. Um, these are not things that are easily communicated, um, particularly about the future. So it, it may take a lot more support with lots more iconic and indexical support so that you get this stuff, so you really mm-hmm. understand how it works. Um, and this tells us that in fact, in building symbols, in building our capacity for symbolic interpretation, even as young children acquiring language for the first time. We have to do so by building an infrastructure first of icons and indices, showing things, sharing things, using words initially, not as symbols, but as indices. Uh, Young children, a year of age and so on, may be using words, but they're not using them symbolically right away. And they have to develop this slowly. So I want to
0: discuss this this difficulty we have, where on the one hand, we know as evolutionary thinkers that there must have been some sort of graded and continuous change in animals and primate lineages that eventually led to language, and yet we do have this apparent discontinuity where humans can do this symbolic thought that is related to language, and it appears that it it appears to not be present in other lineages, and I think many thinkers historically have looked at that discontinuity and said things like, "Ah, well, there must be a special part of the brain that evolved suddenly. There must be a you know a language acquisition device." If you you know people who took a psych one hundred and one or a neuroscience one hundred and one class may have learned about Chomsky's theory of universal grammar, or maybe you've read books like *The Language Instinct*. But the idea is, well, we have this discontinuity, so maybe there was some sort of Big mutation or big single thing that more or less magically or at least suddenly gave us this new ability. So, how do you think about the idea that there's something specifically built into the brain like a language module?
1: So, first of all, I, I don't think there's something like a language module. In fact, much of my early work was to look at human neuroanatomy, compare it to the anatomy of other species' brains. And ask the question, do I find anything new there? Are there new structures? Are there new connections? Uh, and, of course, one of the things that's obvious is that our brains are pretty big for our bodies. Um, there's some quantitative changes, and there are internal quantitative changes that I focused on. But one of the surprises of my early work, this was throughout the 1980s and early 1990s, um, was that there aren't new parts that Particularly are associated with this new capacity. And in fact, what it means is this capacity um, recruited old parts that still do what they evolved to do in chimpanzees and gorillas and so on, um, but are now also uh, associated with language. That is the brain, these brain systems were recruited to do something new. And the recruitment was really complicated because it involves not just one area that does it or two areas that do it, but we are now are pretty clear that most of the cerebral cortex is involved in one way or another um, with word meaning, uh, a really startling feature. Because what it means is that, uh, you know, none of these areas evolved specifically to do language. So that first of all, we're not going to find a simple answer to this question in finding the special part. That's not going to work nor are we going to find the special gene that does this. There are lots of genes that have been changed uh, that make it possible. So it's a multi-gene, multi-regional recruitment process that, first of all, makes it pretty difficult to sort of come up with a nice, neat answer that says, okay, this part does it, and this is why we're where we are. Um, and this is what led me to think about this co-evolutionality. In other words, that an early use of symbolic communication, which is difficult, Symbolic reference is not easy to acquire in the first place. And your point about mathematics is a good one, that we still have difficulty as it becomes more abstract. Um, We have increasing difficulty, um, in a sense, building that infrastructure, knowing why a certain equation looks a certain way, why the iconism of it, uh, why the structure of the equation itself is about the structure of a mathematical relation that's not made up of symbols on a page, but is in fact sort of a relational feature, an abstract relational feature. When we get these levels of abstraction, we get lost pretty easily. So it shouldn't surprise us that early on, this was not an easy thing to do. Uh, But if it had been going on for, as I think about 2 million years, uh, then there's time for that demand to do symbol decoding more easily drove changes in the brain, subtle changes in memory, uh, in ways of acquiring associations, uh, in ways of representing uh, and communicating with each other, uh, using sort of social cues about others' attention and so on. All these things had time to develop in response to communicating symbolically. So I think of this as a sort of ratchet-like effect in which a slight um, demand to use symbolic communication, produced selection for people who did it slightly easier, which produced the capacity to produce more complex symbolic relations, which produced um, selection on people that did it slightly easier, crossed that threshold slightly easier. Over the course of about 2 million years, I think, we developed where we are now so that You know, since having pulled the ladder up after ourselves, after 2 million years of evolution, it looks like this huge fundamental difference in cognition. But I think it was generated not by selection for a single language mutation, but in fact, this accumulation of biases that make it easier and easier and easier over time, distributed over many, many brain areas, over probably changes in neurotransmission, uh, subtle changes in connectivity, and so on, all that simply made the unusual process of acquiring symbols just slightly easier over time. But after 2 million years, it could make quite a difference, quite a discontinuous appearance difference.
0: Mm -hmm. In the book um, related to this area, so we're thinking about co-evolution, how language is in a sense, adapting to the human brain in the same way that the human brain is changing and adapting to its circumstances. And also the idea that there's selection pressure for language to be learned as early as possible. And, and of course, we know that children are somehow special in terms of learning languages. It's very difficult for an adult to learn a language like a child can. And you know there's a quote I wanna read where you say, children's minds need not innately embody language structures if languages embody the predispositions of children's minds. And so can you unpack exactly what you mean by that type of passage?
1: My my point here is that languages themselves have to be passed on, have to to be passed from person to person, generation to generation. In that process, um, there's a bottleneck. And the bottleneck is, of course, acquiring it and then producing it so that somebody else can acquire it. Um, the bottleneck has to do with learnability. The languages that exist today had to be learnable by human brains. Uh, it's one of the reasons why mathematics is not a language. Mathematics is symbolic, but it's not something that we can do spontaneously. And there's a good reason for this. Language, we just have to communicate. Uh, and a little bit of uh, slop is okay. We just, you know, we just need to know that we want to get certain things across. It may take us many times repeating the same thing or in slightly different ways to do that. Um, so what's necessary there is just, just communication. But in mathematics, precision is critical. In language, we have to do it in real time. I have to be able to do it on the fly. I have to be able to decode the symbols and the relationships, the grammatical and syntactic relationships on the fly. So I have to be able to do it pretty automatically. Um, Whereas in mathematics, I may have to stare at an equation for weeks or months to understand what it's about. Redo it, recalculate it, understand it in different circumstances, use it to produce a graph or something like that um, to help me understand it. Um, so in one sense, language is something that has to be done on the fly; It has to be done now. Um, whereas mathematics does not. As a result, they have very different constraints. Mathematics does not have to be easily learnable. Um, and in fact, what we can do is that we can make it a little bit more sensible by finding better notational systems. As our notational systems have gotten better, it becomes easier to pass it on. Um, so there is even still a little selection pressure on mathematics, but it's, the selection pressure is primarily on precision of reference. Where in language, it's on, in a sense, the ability to refer quickly and easily and to get at the symbols and understand their meaning you know, in real time. So yeah, there's different selection pressures. But one of the things that, that we can now say is that we shouldn't have expected um, mathematics to be easily learnable at a young age. Um, because it doesn't require, it doesn't expect that in a sense its, it's future transmission is based upon how quickly the facility is, apply, is acquired and passed on. Whereas language, those languages that exist today must be those that were effectively easily passed on and acquired. Um, and that means that if you're, you have better facility with language, if you've learned it at a younger age, in which you've committed more of your nervous system to this process during a time of great neuroplasticity, um, then you're going to have both more facility to produce it. um, And children who have, in a sense, um, this ability to pick it up easily will be advantaged. But that means also we should expect that languages have adapted, in some sense, to human learnability. And in effect, if, if they're passed on more effectively, if they're acquired younger, then we should expect that language structures themselves have been selected by virtue of being learnable at an early age, at an age in which you can't do mathematics, at an age in which you're not yet able to remember, you know, the names of the streets that you're living on. Uh, A lot of other things are going to be impossible. So that tells us also that languages have adapted to be learnable at a younger age. Uh, And that, I think, is one of the interesting reversals of the idea that somehow we have at a young age, a special language acquisition capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, We probably do have all kinds of things that make it easier to acquire language, but languages have also adapted to us. Um, And this is also another reason why artificial languages don't get passed on uh, where we create artificial languages and try to get them learned uh, universal languages uh, like Esperanto, for example, just didn't seem to catch on. Um, whereas the languages that have spontaneously e- evolved and change over time spontaneously because they get passed on easily and acquired easily um, are languages that have adapted to us.
0: Yeah, this was one of one of the many sort of reversals or perspective shifts in this book for me where we're looking at a familiar phenomenon the facility with which children learn a language, and we're actually reinterpreting it in a new way that seems to make sense once you once you sort of get it. So instead of the, the standard way of thinking, which is really that children have this special critical period that is particularly, that's been engineered by evolutionary processes to be for evolution, you might think of it instead as, as you said, that language itself has sort of adapted to the learning biases of the young brain. And, you know, as a brain develops naturally, I mean, it develops, so it changes its structure. And so as we go from infancy to childhood to adolescence to adulthood, the brain of an individual is going to have a different set of learning and perceptual biases. So if we sort of were to go back in time. And just reverse the area of time and go back all the way to the beginning when whenever language first evolved, we would see it being acquired at later in later a- ages. And presumably the earliest speakers of the thing that we might call the earliest language would have been adults and they would have learned it under you know it, they would have been speaking something with the learning and perceptual biases that those adult brains had. So does this mean that the earliest languages probably had a very different structure and were passed down primarily from adult to adult? And it was only that, you know, over time you had this phenomenon of it getting pushed to earlier and earlier developmental ages?
1: I did not make that claim in my book, but but indeed that's what follows from this. Uh, and it's another reason to think about the early. Symbolic communication is not like spoken language, but in fact, more like ritual. Mm. Um, And if you think about the early language, the early symbol acquisition and communication that has a kind of ritual structure to it, Um, think about the individuals um, acquiring it like you and I acquire higher mathematics. It happens at a later stage. Brains have to be more mature to acquire it. Um, And it doesn't get passed on so well. It's difficult to pass on. Uh, It's going to mean that as that system uh, becomes more acquirable at a younger age, um, those will be passed on more effectively uh, than those things that are only acquired and passed on at older ages. In the same reasons that we don't try to teach children to read and write and do arithmetic until, you know, past age five, six, or seven. Uh, I think of that sort of the distinction that the very earliest symbolic communication was sort of a lot like this problem of reading and writing today.
2: Mm.
1: It's a, you might say, a slightly displaced version of language. We've taken language and we've abstracted it onto the stuff on the page. And then we've taken stuff on the page and abstracted it to these things like numbers and symbols uh, on the page that are really opaque in some respects, Uh, In which the syntax of an equation, if you think about an equation as having syntax, um, it has an iconic form, it has a form, but its form is so abstracted, it's not like a picture, um, but it does have form, some things are close to others and some things are distant from others, some things are next to others, Uh, some things are repeated. The same letter or the same number might be repeated somewhere, or the same operation sign might be repeated somewhere. There are iconic features, likeness features that's, that it's structured by. There are indexical features next to features. Operational, some things operate on other things because they're close by, or that we have parentheses that tell us how to do it, what operates on what first, second, and third. Um, in some respects, what we've done with mathematics is abstracted at many steps away from language. Um, it makes it much more powerful in some sense because of its abstraction. Um, but it still has some of the same problems. And so I like to think about early simple users, uh, like those of us who are struggling to acquire mathematics as young adults.
0: So one of the stories that you tell in the book that has to do with you know how, how we should think or rethink the idea of a critical period for language, in early childhood, is the story of Kanzi. So can you tell the story of of Kanzi and what was special about that ape and and what it means for this this general topic?
1: So this requires putting it in context a little bit because Kanzi of bonobo um, was uh, an an ape uh, related to chimpanzees uh, that acquired language at a fairly young age. Um, Before this, a number of studies using chimpanzees um, had taught chimpanzees to use a symbol system, a keyboard system in which they push buttons uh, that had particular what they call lexigrams on them, arbitrary squiggles uh, that were meant to be like symbols. And if you push them in the right way, you're sort of communicating symbolically. Um, to train the chimpanzees to do this, they really had to wait until the chimpanzees were into their adolescence. Uh, young chimpanzees just could not learn this stuff, just like we have trouble, you know, learning mathematics at a young age. Um, but when they reach a certain age, they did a pretty good job of acquiring this thing. So uh, there's a couple of chimpanzees named Sherman and Austin that were pretty good at this uh, by the early 1980s. Um, when Kanzi, a different species related to chimpanzees, bonobos, uh, were brought into this same research facility down in Atlanta, one of the things that, that happened is that they tried to, tra- to train this also for Kanzi's stepmother. Now, Kanzi was sort of brought in from the wild as a young chimpanzee and was raised by a stepmother named Matata. Matata was now old enough to be taught this language system. Um, at the time, whenever you pushed the buttons, they had updated their computer a little bit. So it also spoke. It said the word when you pushed the button. Uh, And so they tried to train Matata in this same push-button symbol system. Um, Matata was not a very good learner. She did not acquire it very well. Uh, And in part, she did not acquire it well because she was raising Kanzi at the same time. Kanzi was this little youngster crawling all over her, pushing over the apparatus, getting in the way and messing things up. Matata, as a result, was just simply not learning. But Kanzi was there all the time. At some point, um, and I like to think about this as Kanzi being frustrated with his stepmother, Um, the questions are asked Matata, and Kanzi just pushes the button to get the answer. He's, in their mind, in the experimenter's mind, he's too young to learn, too young to acquire these symbols. But it looks as though, um, without actually having been trained, just sort of hanging around with his mom while they were trying to train her, he got it. He figured it out. He was too young to be trained with a sort of stimulus response kind of training, um, but got it. And once they began testing him without any extra training, he seemed to have this huge vocabulary that he'd already acquired um, without being trained. He was a sort of passive observer in the process. Now, I think there's a couple of ways to think about this. One is that, and this is what they originally thought Well, it must be that bonobos are much better at this than (laughs) chimpanzees, and that's the whole difficulty. Now, the problem is, of course, they were trying to train Matata. Matata was also a bonobo. So for some reason, it wasn't working with Matata. Um, The other way to think about it is that um, now they were using symbols in a much more language-like way, much more naturalistic way, because they were actually speaking. The keyboards were making the word sounds. Kanzi was picking it up probably a little bit more like a child picks up language. Um, and the structure of course of the keyboard system, although it was artificial, it was based upon language, how language works, verbs and nouns and things like that, requests and responses to, to, to requests. Um, all of these things were sort of built in. This is the way language is of course structured. So another way to interpret this is that Kanzi's immaturity was actually an advantage. Uh, and that for us, being immature is actually an advantage. Having a brain that doesn't have quite the same kind of memory system and learning system that an adult brain has was actually an advantage for Kanzi. And I think that's another way to think about our own situation.
0: Yeah, I was um, really interested in this idea that handicaps, more or less, the the inability to do something can simultaneously be the ability or be adjacent to the ability to learn another kind of thing and so you discuss this a lot in the context of children learning language you also use the example which i think makes this point very well of so-called idiot savants so people that have very abnormal brains so if, if people have ever seen the movie rain man that's actually based on a real life person named kim Peek, p-e-e-k and there's a fantastic youtube documentary about this individual who has a brain problem they're born with a brain that is structurally very abnormal and they can't take care of themselves they can't they're very handicapped mentally in many different ways and yet they have these superhuman capabilities like you know just unbelievable memory capacity and you also give examples of other animals in in the animal world where you know, you look at certain animals like certain bird species, and they have this ability to remember things that is extraordinary, and yet they don't seem to be very smart in other ways. And so there's this, there's this idea that I think you make very clear in the book that handicaps for one thing could actually empower you to be very good at something else simply because at a certain stage or, or being a certain species, you have a brain that's structured to give you certain biases that make you good for the one thing but bad for the other.
1: And I think that's a good way to think about us. I think that we, in fact, are not so good at some things, precisely because we're so good at this capacity of acquiring symbolic relations. What
0: are some of the things that you would say humans are not very good at?
1: There's a wonderful study um, done in Japan with the chimpanzee eye, uh, in which the, the, this chimpanzee has been taught um, to recognize the numerals one to nine and to recognize that they're ordered one to nine. Um, and the task was um, show on the screen, flash up, um, distributed on, the, on the, the touch screen, a bunch of numerals one to nine. And the chimpanzee has to push them in order. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Um, and learn this pretty well. The the key is that this same procedure now is done when you flash the keys, the the numerals up on the screen, and then over the top of each numeral now, you just put a blank square. So they suddenly disappear within a fraction of a second. They're shown and they disappear. Can you now push the squares in order one to nine? Um, If you've only seen them for a fraction of a second, and they've been flashed up in different positions, on the screen. Uh, The chimpanzee can do this really well. That is, in a single glance, have the memory, the eidetic memory of the the screen and where each number was placed um, and can do this. Human beings, we try and try and try and just can't do it. Uh, There's an ability to, in a sense, um, take this eidetic information in, uh, sort of like the idiot savant, the rain man kind of example, in which it's now suddenly there and they can do this in a way that we cannot do because what we're trying to do, and I look at numbers on the screen, I think of you know the concept of one, two, three, four, five. I, I'm thinking of all the symbolic relations. Um, if they're flashed up there for a fraction of a second, uh, it just takes time for me to do that um, because I'm biased in a different way. I can't do this. I can't possibly keep up. Uh, with the chimpanzee's capacity. The chimpanzee is not seeing them symbolically. It's seeing something else, uh, and it's been specialized to sort of make these snap judgments on the basis of this geometric distribution. Of course, must be necessary if you're going to go flying through the trees hand over hand over hand. You need to have this kind of capacity. We seem to have sacrificed it uh, for this other capacity.
0: And I want to go back to talking about the structural features of the human brain that give us the kinds of learning and perceptual biases necessary to acquire this ability to perform symbolic representation of things. And so, you know, earlier you mentioned the idea of size. And so a lot of people, you know, even in the academic world that think about brain evolution will first point to the fact that, well, we have really big brains. And then you might say, well, we have big brains, but a whale's brain is bigger than ours. And then typically the response is, well, we have brains that are big for our bodies. And so maybe we have the biggest brain for our body of any animal. And you sort of explore these ideas. And so can you just unpack what, what, what is the relationship between human brain size and body size that you think is important for understanding what we've been talking about?
1: It's a good question because there's lots of misinformation uh, associated with this. Number one, we don't have the largest brain for our body size. Um, we have a brain that's about 2% of, of weight for our body weight, um, some, somewhere between 1% and 2%. A, a mouse has about 4%. Um, so in terms of brain and body size, uh, we're not the tops. Um Do we have the largest brains? No, we don't. As you pointed out, uh, many whales uh, have much larger brains than ours, sometimes uh, four or five times larger than ours, really large brains. Um, Of course, they have very large bodies. So absolute size and relative size are both, in a sense, red herrings. They lead us to the wrong conclusions. Uh, There is a sense in which our brain is unusual for our body size. For an animal of our size we do have the largest brain for an animal of our size. Uh, That's an unusual feature, but it's also the case that that monkeys and apes um, compared to non-primates for the same body size have larger brains. Um, A lot of my work has spent time trying to understand how that evolved and how it develops. So one of the things that we found, for example, um, is old data, that in fact, there is what we call an allometric relationships. And this is why mice have larger percentages of brains, and elephants and whales have smaller percentages of brains for their body size. Brains seem to enlarge with respect to body size, sort of the way that the surface of a ball enlarges with respect to its volume, roughly to the two-thirds power. That is, it's a surface-to-volume relationship. There have been lots of Claims about why that might be true, why it is that mammal brains uh, and bird brains as well uh, have this sort of scaling relationship with respect to bodies. One of the, one of the ways to think about it is maybe that has to do with just simply that's how you st- sort of stay even. You know, the, the brains don't have to expand you know as fast as volume. Uh, and there's lots of reasons for thinking that. Um, I, I won't go into the many theories. One of the things that we did find about primates: why is it that primates Have about twice as much brain for their bodies as other mammals of the same size. What we found, interestingly enough, and this is work that I began some years ago, and actually, even over the last few decades, have improved upon. We now know that that's because primate bodies grow slower in the womb, but primate brains grow at the same rate as other mammal brains do in the womb. Mm. But that means that from a very early stage, of development shortly after um, implantation. um, Bodies are just growing slower in primates. But if we look at brain size per time, brains are growing at the same rate as they do in dogs and cats Hmm. uh, and elephants and horses and whatever.
0: So so newborns don't exactly have big heads, they have small bodies.
1: That's right. So, and, and they have a brain that will continue to develop over time a little bit longer which makes them unusual in that respect. Uh, But it's it's even more troublesome than this. Uh, And that is that if you look at some species with small bodies or some breeds of dogs with small bodies, I use the example of chihuahuas. Chihuahuas actually can have a much larger percentage of brain-to-body than us. Um, And that's because in the womb, they're developing like a typical dog. But shortly after birth, their bodies stop growing. Hmm. And so, whereas a normal dog, its body keeps growing, um, a chihuahua in the womb is growing like a typical dog. And as a result, its brain seems to be functioning like a typical dog. We don't think about chihuahuas as being super smart because they have more brain for their body. Um, They seem like a fairly typical dog. Uh, On the other hand, um, there's a difference in primates. And that is if your brain and body difference is different all the way through gestation and brains have to connect with bodies during development. Axons, output branches from neurons have to find their way into the body and neurons from the body have to send their information up to the brain. Um, all during development of the brain in primates and in humans, um, there's this disproportion of brains and bodies. That's not the case for the chihuahua. Um, so that the adult disproportion of brain and body um, seems not to be as important as this developmental process. Uh, And what that means is that we need to start looking at how brains develop and how size might affect how brains develop in order to begin to answer this question. What does size difference mean for us? Mm -hmm. Because clearly our large brains for our smaller bodies, much larger, about three times larger than you'd expect in a chimpanzee of our body size. Um, Size does matter, but how size is produced, how it's generated, and when it's generated during development, when the disproportion is generated, matters a lot. And one of the things that's different about us is that not only do we develop like a typical primate in the womb, but our brain's keep maturing as though we're still in the womb for the first year of our life. So that, in effect, we also diverge from primates in this respect. Um, We're like primates in the womb, but we have this extended brain development. Our brains are developing like we were a much larger primate. In fact, I like to use the example of, you know, imagine we were a a, a, a 10-foot-tall primate as adults. Our brains develop on a pathway as though we're primates that are that big, but our bodies never get there. Our bodies stay at this slow development. So in effect, um, I had to turn my attention when I was thinking about this, turn my attention to development. How does the brain develop? How are structures within the brain, even though it's just a larger brain with no new parts, just more of the same, um, Could this developmental difference cause size differences, connection differences, and so on within the brain as a Mm -hmm. consequence of this? And this this is the
0: part of the book that was evocative for me of ideas that people often describe as Neural Darwinism. So I'm thinking of uh, thinkers like Gerald Edelman and others. And many people listening probably won't be aware of these ideas. So just like you think of Darwinian natural selection operating in the origin of species, there are sort of Darwinian-like processes in the developing brain where different uh, neuron populations of neurons are in effect competing with each other, and many of them get pruned away. So, how does this concept of neural Darwinism and competition between different brain structures and different locations start to fit into this?
1: So, it's a really interesting question, and it's unfortunate that most people who think about the evolution of language and even the evolution of brains, um, not being aware of these developmental issues, don't recognize how important it is to look at this. Uh, it, a field that's been called Evo-Devo over the last uh, 20 years or so. Evo referring to evolution and Devo development um, tries to get at these issues. Uh, And I became very much focused on this in development. One of the reasons I began doing research in terms of neural transplantation, fetal neural transplantation was to begin to understand how these developmental features um, might have to do with species differences. So, the, the key is this, and this turns out to be true for lots of structures in embryological development in animals and, and even in plants to some extent. Um, that is one way, and I like to think about it in terms of you're going to build a, a stone wall, but you want to have a door in the stone wall. Um, uh, you know, one way to do it is to build the wall and then knock things out so that you have a, a door that you can pass through. Um, the stones will then sort of settle into place, but if you try to build the, the stone so that they create this arch to begin with, it can be very difficult, it takes a lot of work. Um, so that in one sense, um, and this is the sort of evolutionary strategy, just build a lot of diversity and then select out from that diversity. Um, you know, Build your wall and knock things out. Well, it turns out that the brain is built this way in lots of respects. Um, it turns out that, that neurons are way overproduced during development. Um, and then the fine-tuning takes place as they compete with each other for function. And those things that have better, in a sense, more correlated function with their inputs and outputs, out-compete, survive, and others disappear. This happens also, and I was most focused on this in terms of connections, uh, because one of the things that happens is that neurons, in, there are cells that appear and are born in different parts of the brain, and they need to connect to each other. How do they connect to each other? Well, they grow out these long branches called axons that have to find their way to distant areas in the brain and make connections with certain neurons. They do this by sort of sniffing their way forward uh, during development. They find their targets. They make connections. But it turns out that in this sniffing process of finding your targets, many more neurons find overlapping targets early on. It's a not, not very specific technology. Uh, But what happens is that once they're connected, they begin to send signals to each other. And uh, there's this phrase that we like to use uh, when we teach this, that neurons that fire together wire together, Uh, that in effect, the correlation of activity determines that those connections will be maintained and connections uh, that don't seem to be synchronized with each other, don't seem to be, you might say, synergistic in their functioning, uh, seem to be eliminated over time. So it uses this sort of selection-like logic. Now, it's a little different than natural selection because there's not multiple generations of this. It just happens in one shot. You generate a lot of variety, and then you select it, and you make the fine-grained circuits after the fact. It turns out that not only is this done intrinsically, but also external information, visual information, auditory information, plays a role in this pruning process that fine-tunes connectivity. Uh, so, in fact, uh, having input of a special kind and being biased to sort of take that input in and use it functionally also plays a role in wiring uh, the specifics of the brain. One of the reasons why young brains uh, are more sensitive to the surrounding than adult brains and that you can, in a sense, it's, the, it's that standard story, you know, you can't teach old dogs new tricks but it's really easy to teach young dogs new tricks. Uh, well, the same thing is true, of course, for languages we've found. Um, but it's true for a lot of things, in part because what's happening is that early on, there is this process of taking a relatively non-specifically connected brain and using information, both intrinsic and extrinsically provided, to sort of fine-tune the wiring. Once this now becomes clear, we realize that The relationship between brains and bodies during this period of time matters a lot. Uh, Having, you know, because of an abnormality, having an extra finger develop, Um, it won't be that that extra finger doesn't have innervation. That extra finger usually will work. Someone with six fingers will have fingers that all are articulate. Um, The brain adapts to the body it finds itself in in this respect. Uh, If we for some reason, developed an extra limb by some weird mutation. My guess is that the brain would adapt to using that limb. Uh, similarly, if you know, if we lose things, if we have fewer limbs, um, the brain adapts to that effect. Um, but this only happens early on.
0: So you, you know, you seem to be well. Let me put it this way: there's this um, tendency. It's probably, I think, it's just a natural human tendency. But you see it. In people, including neuroscientists, and I I found myself constantly doing this naturally. Where you, you, we just naturally think about the brain in phrenological terms. We like to think about it as you've got one module in one place, a different module in a different place. And to be sure, different parts of the brain, different areas of real estate, are specialized um, for different reasons in the brain. If you go look for that, you will find that. But you seem to be coming at this more from the tradition of someone like uh, maybe Darcy Thompson who's thinking about development and proportions and this concept of allometry, which is a lot of what you were just talking about, really. So very briefly, could you just mention who, who that was and what, what is allometry? You didn't use that term, but yeah. maybe define it because people probably haven't heard it before.
1: So the term allometry, of course, comes from two parts, allo and meter. Uh, meter, of course, measurements. Allo means difference. Allometry has to do with the fact that during growth. Um In our lives, as well as comparing animals of different size, um, things don't grow at the same rate. So we look at young newborns, they have big heads and small bodies. Allometry says that as they mature, their brain will stop growing at an earlier stage, and their body will keep growing. And as a result, when we look at an adult body, they have a big body and a small head in comparison to, to babies. who have big heads and small bodies. Um, that process is an allometric process. That is allo, meaning two different meters of growth, two different rates of growth. When we find animals of different size, um, we see the same feature. And when I describe the difference between mouse brain and body relationships and human brain and body relationships, that's the result of an allometry, a different rate of growth across phylogeny. As mammals get bigger, their brains and their heads don't get as big as fast as other parts of their body another way to see this it was actually probably the first person to see this was galileo galileo was looking at the bones of um, mice and small animals and the bones of very large animals like elephants and, and hippopotami and noticed that the small animals had long thin bones and the big animals had large fat stubby bones And he realized that this had to do with the fact that um, the strength of a bone that has to hold up a body, it's growing linearly. Um, But bodies are putting on weight to the third power, to the cube Mm. power of volume. So it's a length to volume relationship. in order to keep up enough strength support for this very, very large body, as things get bigger, bones have to get faster and stubbier. Um, as they get bigger. So they, they change their relative shape. So you can't just imagine a mouse body blown up like a balloon, being able to support itself. It wouldn't be able to support itself. Its bones would all crack and break. That's an allometry relationship. Um, so what I'm struggling here with is that in fact, there's a developmental allometry that goes on in the growth of the brain and body in the womb, uh, early on in development, And what's happening is that this process that looks sort of Darwinian-like is a process of keeping the thing, in a sense, organized allometrically. So one of the things that's happening is that this is a process that allows the nervous system to adapt to its body without having to know in advance what it's going to be finding out there, so to speak. It's in a sense, the way that natural selection adapts organisms to their environment over time. Um, It turns out that you can think about that in sort of microcosm in embryology. Uh, The nervous system is adapting to what it finds out there, and it does so by using this natural selection-like logic. Hmm.
0: And so I want to talk about a couple of structural features of the brain that are probably relevant. And the first is the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex, as most people know, it's it's sort of uh, the large, it's a very large structure in humans compared to other mammals. It's the part of the brain right behind the forehead, more or less. And it's responsible, people generally talk about it being responsible for The sexier aspects of human cognition, (laughs) executive control, doing complicated things, context switching, all of that stuff. So, does the prefrontal cortex, in your view, play a special or outsized role in symbolic thought and language learning? And if so, what is that role?
1: That's probably the most difficult question of, of all, because in some respects, we have not fully resolved this. And we have not resolved it for surprising reasons. We don't actually have really definitive understanding for the relative size of the prefrontal cortex. And there's a couple of reasons for it. But let me just sort of give the background behind this. Um, And this has to do with this developmental discussion we were having. Because there's some parts of the brain that are fairly directly connected with the body, our motor system, the, the cerebral part of the cerebral cortex, we call motor cortex, which has fairly direct output to the spinal cord neurons that connect with muscles. Uh, We have inputs uh, about the tactile surface of our skin, about from the retina and so on. Uh, Things are relatively direct coming back into the brain. Um, Given that the brain is adapting to the body it finds itself in during maturation, uh, then one of the things that's going to happen is that the relationship between the periphery and the central part of the nervous system is going to be much more strongly constrained for those systems that have a much more direct relationship to our bodies, to our sensory input, our motor output. Um, but there are parts of the nervous system, parts of the cerebral cortex that have a very indirect relationship to the body. And one of those is prefrontal cortex, other areas, uh, what we call parietal cortex also to some extent, but prefrontal cortex probably is the most distal in the sense that there's a, the most indirect connection to the rest of the body. And it turns out that those things that are most directly connected to the body also are some of the first to mature as the brain matures. So prefrontal cortex is also late to mature uh, for all of these reasons. That means that as brains and bodies have shifted out of proportion in primates, and then again in us with respect to the rest of the primates, um, those areas that are most directly connected to the periphery are going to be relatively well sized in terms of their function with respect to the peripheral needs. But those areas that are most distally connected, most indirectly connected, uh, will in a sense inherit any of the extra space. Uh, and my argument in that in the book, and it's still an argument that I would make, um, is that the prefrontal cortex, because of its distal connection with the body, because of its late maturation, inherits a lot of space that's not taken, taken over Because if this is a brain that would have developed in an animal that's 8 to 10 feet tall and weighs a half a ton, uh, then we would expect much more of the brain to be sort of involved with its peripheral receptors and effectors. But given the fact that it's not in that kind of a body, that means that there's less of the brain that's taken up to deal with the body, leaving some out there. Now, the key is what is prefrontal cortex doing then if it's not directly connected to the rest of the body? Well, it turns out to be playing a critical role in lots of orienting and mnemonic features. Uh, you mentioned some of them. We, we sometimes generally collapse that into this idea that we call executive function. Um, I think that's a little misleading because it has a kind of homuncular like sense that that's where, where the executive stands and controls the rest of the brain. I think that's a little misleading. Um, it has, for example, a lot of connectivity with an area called the tectum or superior colliculus, uh, in, in, Primates and other mammals, an area involved in orienting, you know, sort of focusing attention, adjusting attention, and keeping track of things. One of the things we need to do when we're orienting on one thing is we also need to keep track of the background. And when something happens somewhere else, we need to be able to move to that place, bring our attention to that new problem. Uh, prefrontal cortex really plays a role in sort of juggling the possibility of multiple foci of attention, keeping some things in view and other things sort of on the ready. Uh, So it turns out to play a really crucial role in lots of combinatorial-like processes and that sort of thing where we really have to keep track of the details and sometimes suppress some details in order to focus on on others. That's why we call it executive sometimes because it plays this sort of role of deciding, and I think, again, this has a homuncular sense to it, but of deciding what to attend to, what not to attend to, and what to be ready to attend to. And so prefrontal damage oftentimes causes problems of that sort uh, in which we're sort of driven by peripheral features. Uh, We can't suppress tendencies and so on. Another reason to call it executive in that respect. My point with respect to symbols is that's exactly the problem with symbols. Symbols are stimuli that are not directly connected with things. Mm. Uh, And in fact, they work by virtue of combinations about how they affect each other, how they refer to each other. We began this discussion with this troublesome question, why don't we extinguish that association if the association is lost like other associations? Well, the key to that, of course, is that it's because symbols are related to other symbols. I mean, I like to think about this in terms of a thesaurus or a dictionary. Mm -hmm. Um, we can think of each of those as a kind of a network system in which each symbol, each word is sort of linked to other words. And uh, the network is distributed in lots of ways. And, and you can see how words are linked to words, so linked to words. That linkage is one of the things that keeps them all in our memory. That is, they're not linked to things in the world as much as they're linked to each other. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, often defined.
0: I often had the image in my mind when you were explaining some of this in the book of almost two two layers of networks if you've ever seen like the neural network architecture or something that that people show in computer science. You know, you can imagine symbols, uh, uh, you know, a lattice of connections between symbols where some symbols are highly connected to other symbols, but then the symbols also point down to a second layer which would be the, the layer that contains all of the concrete items in the world they refer to such that you know, if you break the connection between a symbol and the thing it refers to, because it's not highly correlated with that symbol, just like the examples we discussed earlier, the whole structure is still maintained because there's this other web of symbol-symbol connections. And it started to give me a picture of why it was true that we don't extinguish a lot of these associations, even though the symbols aren't directly correlated with what they, what they refer to.
1: Well, yeah, think about how many words a typical speaker of a language Mm-hmm. maintains in relation to each other and to possible reference, oftentimes in the range of, you know, 20,000. Um, this is not like something you, you learn a little bit of association. It, it's held together by virtue of this elaborate network. You just described, sometimes linguists describe it as maybe a lexical network or a semantic network. Um, it's those associations that hold it together, but it's precisely because its reference demands association. Once you've sort of cut that link to the thing in the world or weakened it in some respect, you really need the strength um, of other connections. And as a result, when we refer to things in the world, we do so with sentences, by putting words together. The symbols generally don't work alone. Um, We sometimes have symbols that can work alone in special contexts, but they're in special contexts. Mm -hmm. So think about, you know, sitting in the theater and suddenly yelling, fire! Um you're not pointing to a particular fire but what you what it does is that everybody in the in the theaters recognizes that if a symbol does not show up in a sentence it has to directly refer to something that's immediately present it becomes indexical
2: mm.
1: so when somebody yells fire without it without it being in a sentence we automatically assume well there's a fire right here and now <laughs> um, it's, it takes on this other function. But if I said, you know, l- let's, let's have a fire tonight. Um, the complicated relationships between these other words allow me to sort of disanta- dis- disentangle it from the r- world immediately that it's in. Um, what's interesting about this is that the sentence, therefore, is also doing iconic and indexical work because the structure of the sentence, the grammar and syntax we like to think about um, is actually doing iconic and indexical work. Um, uh, let me give you a, a simple example. I'm gonna sort of make a noise here and we can, we can hear it. You can hear that noise as I tap on my computer. Um, in doing so, you know something about what's happened. You can use the noise to know it's indexical of something happening. Um, when I say that um, hard, the index and the word now actually do something. They say the surface of this computer is hard. Mm. The index is playing this role. But notice that the phrase, the surface of this computer is hard that whole phrase is doing effectively the indexical work. It's pointing to something so that we don't tend to think about this, but the structure of grammar and syntax, what makes a sentence a sentence is that it has recaptured and recoded the iconic and indexical features of the world. The sentence itself is iconic of this relationship that I created by saying hard. I've used these other words to do indexical work and symbolic work. And so it's one of the other features that we talked about before that symbols are embedded in this iconic and indexical world, but they also then produce a higher order iconic and indexical relation. Hmm.
0: So given what we've just discussed about the prefrontal cortex and its apparent importance for symbol learning, How do you think about the fact that children, young children, the ones doing the symbolic learning actually have um, immature prefrontal cortex, that being an area of the brain that is one of the last to actually fully mature?
1: Right. And in fact, it probably doesn't mature until maybe three, four years of age to come at a level that it can do the kinds of things that we can do. And that suggests to me that in fact, a lot of the early, what we call early language learning is very iconic and indexical. Um, mm. That we overinterpret it because it's a word, and we know how to interpret words. Um, we take it as symbolic. But one of the things that we try to do is we try to pull out the indexical features that, that young children are using it and embed it in a larger context.
0: Mm. I'm immediately now to, that now that you say that it almost seems obvious. Like a very young child just starting to use words is always pointing to a thing that's right there and naming it. They're not talking about something tomorrow.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And not only that, notice that children begin, and this is something I think is uniquely human and is critical for language learning, is we point, we reach, we have hands, we can exchange things, and we can point to things. We can direct each other's attention. And a number of people have sort of pulled out this sort of shared attention problem, joint attention as a really critical feature, notice that this happens before we even start acquiring language. Uh, And children are very good at it. Um, Other species just don't get it. Um, When I point to something, my dog looks at my hand, not what I'm pointing to. Uh, Children, it's just the other way around. And we look at each other's eyes, and we know where, where the face is turned, what we're attending to. Joint attention is pretty critical here, because it's doing the indexical work. And the indexical work is important to assigning the reference to the sound that we're producing. And yet early on, it's also just an index. They're correlated with each other. The sound is correlated with the doggy, with the pointing. Uh, but one of the things that's happening, and I describe this as sort of ungrounding. we need to sort of figure out as young children um, how to take these iconic and indexical uses of words and shift the iconic and indexical features to the relationships between words as opposed to the relationships between words and objects.
2: And
1: mm-hmm. one of the things that's going on is you need to make this shift. I think it happens slowly in children. Um, I think we overinterpret them as doing language uh, because we haven't distinguished the iconic and indexical from symbolic at this stage. Because we're so used to words as being symbolic. But one of the things that we adults do is, of course, we're trying to embed what we see the indexical and iconic use of these sounds, of these words that children are producing. We want to embed it in this symbolic realm. We need to sort of pull them out of the iconic and indexical into the symbolic world. And we're good at it as adults. And children are good at sort of following this uh, because they're very much interested in what adults and their caretakers are attending to
2: Mm -hmm.
0: do you think um i'm a little fuzzy on my developmental psychology but roughly speaking you know young children will start to learn words and they kind of learn them relatively slowly one at a time they have limited vocabulary then at some point there really does seem to be a threshold where you have this explosion in their vocabulary do you think that maybe roughly corresponds to the brain sort of figuring out the symbol mapping part of this
1: I think so. And, and and of course, remember that we're never finished. You know, those of us that have struggled with math, with higher mathematics, um, we just can't do that, that level upon level upon level of abstraction uh, very well. So children start very concretely mm-hmm. and their use of it is very concrete. But in effect, um, they have simple sentences to begin with. That point at which word acquisition really accelerates is shortly after they begin to use two- and three-word utterances. That is, it doesn't begin to accelerate until they begin to do this combinatorial work. Now the combinatorial work is forcing them to sort of parse out the iconic and indexical features and understand the symbol relationships. Mm. As soon as they do that, now the symbols are reinforcing each other. Now you can acquire lots of symbols very rapidly because they're now acquired as part of this large network and the network keeps them going so that this transition you're talking about, I think is very much like the the sort of associative learning that begins this in terms of things associated with the world in an indexical way. Suddenly they begin to shift into a a symbolic learning system in which they begin to shift the mnemonics that they're using to Mm -hmm. hold words together into this symbol, symbol relationship.
0: I see. So, the other major structural feature of the brain I wanted to talk about in relationship to language learning is the lateralization of the brain and the fact that we have two hemispheres, a left and a right. And to some extent, you know, again, if you think back to a Psych 101 or a Neurobiology 101 course, you learn that the brain is lateralized, there's a left and a right. Some things that the brain does. Are not lateralized or specialized into one hemisphere, and some things are. And usually, the big example of a thing that has clear lateralization that you learn about is language. And you know, if I caricature or simplify, but not not really too much. Really, you often do uh, have it taught to you in school in this um, fairly simple way, which is the left side of the brain is usually for language. You learn about Broca's area and and Wernicke's area, and the right side isn't so much for language. Um, to what extent is language lateralized in any way to one hemisphere or the other, and more generally, what what role do you think lateralization plays that might be crucial for crossing the symbolic threshold?
1: It's a good question, in part because I think we've overplayed the lateralization story. Um, We do know that people can have reverse lateralization. We know that children um, born with a disorder that causes them to have most of their left hemisphere missing can acquire language. Um, We also know that um, a study done many years ago now with simultaneous translators. These are people who listen to somebody speaking and while they're speaking, say it in another language. So, you know, in the United Nations, we have these people assigned or a person who does, you know, uh, sign language translation, you know, in real time while somebody else is speaking. One things that was found early on is that typically um, as students are learning to do this, they develop ear preferences. Uh, and oftentimes the most successful simultaneous translators um, have lateralized the two languages differently. Hmm. So they're not competing with each other. Uh, and, and, and they end up having an ear preference for one language and not the other. And so they have an earphone in one language in one ear and not the other ear as they're as they're translating. Uh, so this tells us that even young adults. Have considerable plasticity in terms of what side of the brain is doing what. Uh, the other part is that, again, thinking about language in a sort of um, general sense that language is just one thing, um, we tend to think of it well, language is here or there. What's really going on is that different aspects of language are being fractionated mm-hmm. into the two hemispheres. And the things you want to fractionate, just like in the case of the simultaneous translator are things that are gonna get in each other's way. Mm. So what's gonna get in, its, in each other's way? Well, if for example, um, looking at the combinatorial relationships of language, as the words fitting together and modifying each other, um, versus this other aspect, which is its relationship to sensory and motor experience and maybe emotionality. Um, these are two kinds of associations of the same sound that could potentially get in each other's way. So as we acquire language and become more and more efficient at it, as we mature, one way to make it more and more efficient is to begin to fractionate those functions on the two sides. Not completely, not that one side will do one thing and the other side will only do the other, but largely that it will, in a sense, do a division of labor. Mm -hmm. So what we find is oftentimes in the right hemisphere, um, there's a lot of understanding of what you might call um, the referential and particularly the emotional or attentional features of language. Uh, One of the things that people have noticed is that right hemisphere damage um, oftentimes causes people um, to lose the ability to see sort of the big picture. Uh, Classic stories are, you know, you tell a story in which there's you know, a lot of things going on and there's an anomalous event in the story. Um, Right hemisphere um, damage means that oftentimes you don't see why something is anomalous, doesn't fit, but you interpret all the details well because your left hemisphere is getting the connections right and following the logic of the story, following what leads after what leads after what, but not sort of getting sort of the big picture. The other thing that is often noticed is, of course, right hemisphere damage causes what we call aprosodias. Uh, 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 this has to do with what we call prosodic features. So the fact that if I get excited, my voice gets higher and faster. If I'm depressed, you can tell that it's depressed because of the way I'm speaking. It, that we communicate emotionality or attentionality um, or what we think is important or unimportant. By virtue of these changes in tonality in speed and so on, this is very strongly both produced and interpreted on the right hemisphere. So right hemisphere damage oftentimes produces very flat speech. Speech is maintained in a normal way, but it's very robotic. It doesn't have a lot of character like this. Um, whereas left hemisphere damage, we lose a lot of the detail, um, but oftentimes uh, a aphasic patients has patients who have damage to um, some of these language specific like areas, areas that are really specialized for language. Um, uh, don't get the details of meanings and connections, but get the gist of what's being communicated, get the pragmatic framing of what's going on. Um, whereas the split brain experiments where a patient has its corpus callosum cut so that there's not communication back and forth, oftentimes um, will separate these two functions. And particularly shortly after the procedure, oftentimes only one side, is sort of dealing with one aspect and the other side dealing with the other aspect. Over time, it looks as though most of those patients begin to develop compensation for that.
0: I want to, um, again, start to talk about this idea of co-evolution, that you know, humans are adapted to be able to acquire and use language, but also that language is adapting to the brain, in particular, that the child's brain. And you almost you know, talk about language in the book as if it's this other organism. So the same way that a gazelle and a cheetah co-evolve because they're two separate organisms that have a deep relationship, language and the human uh, structures and and the human phenotypes are are co-evolving with each other. At, At one point in the book, you have a passage that says, quote, languages are far more like living organisms than like mathematical proofs. And I believe at that time, where that passage comes up, you know, you're contrasting the way that you're thinking about things with the way that a lot of linguists would classically think about language. And so, what do you mean when you say that language is more like a living organism than a mathematical proof?
1: It's a very good question, and of course, it's 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 metaphoric. I mean, I don't mean that languages themselves are like living organisms in that sense. Um, what I am describing is that. Languages have to persist historically across many generations. And their persistence depends upon their learnability, their usability, and their transmissibility. Those are all things that are crucial. So that the persistence of language has something to do with how it fits with the users and with the brains of its users. Uh, So when we talk about language change, we're oftentimes dealing with facts that language doesn't just change at random. There's certainly certain ways that it changes uh, because there are certain transmission and learning capacities that are sort of built into this. Uh, The way to think about this has been reconceived since I wrote this book, not just by me, but by others uh, with a phrase in evolutionary biology called niche construction, niche construction, um, is a recognition that organisms don't just respond to their world, but they change their world. And in changing their world, it affects the way they have to respond to it. Um, so the most obvious simple example are beavers and beaver dance. Beavers create an aquatic niche by their behaviors. and They've been doing so for millions of years. As a result, beavers are rodents that have become aquatically adapted. They have flat tails. They know how to hold their breath. Uh, They know how to swim. They have webbed feet. Um, They've become adapted to a niche that beavers have created. Um, So I I like to think about language and culture as our beaver dam, our aquatic uh, environment. Uh, Beavers are aquatic rodents. We're symbolic primates. That is, the symbol world is our aquatic world. Um, And we've had to adapt to that world. We create that world. We pass it on. It's not within an individual. It's picked up. It's passed on. It's recreated generation after generation, like beavers build dams generation after generation. It's beaver bodies that have adapted to that physical environment. It's primate brains or human brains that have adapted to this abstract symbolic environment. Hmm. And so, in in effect, um, we're living in this niche we're embedded in this niche. We can't get out of it. We're so embedded in it that we would say that a human being that doesn't have this experience is not a human being. There's something fundamentally missing. They're not human in some sense. And this is a so-called problem of the wild children, the feral children that are raised without language and human interaction. Um, In effect, they're not really human in the full sense of it because a lot of what is humanness now is something that's distributed in this niche that we're all embedded in, can't get out of. And our brains, you might say, expect this niche. We come into the world expecting certain kinds of social interactions, expecting certain kinds of communication. Our brains are set up to expect it. They've, in a sense, given up some things to be more adapted to this world, to this niche. And it shouldn't surprise us that this niche is not an ecological niche in the same sense. And so, much about our brains and bodies and our behaviors um, don't look like they're adapted to the kind of world that, say, chimpanzees are adapted to. Because we've adapted to this very different, in a sense, non-ecological niche, this symbolic cultural niche.
0: Mm -hmm. I think you do a good job in the book of making it clear that we, you know, our brains evolved physically somehow to be able to cross the symbolic threshold and engage in symbolic thinking. But once we did that, we've now effectively created this niche, this new environment, which then changes a whole set of selection pressures that cause subsequent brain evolution. So we're sort of somehow evolving for some reason to cross the symbolic threshold and be able to do this kind of cognitive trick that's very powerful but then in so doing we're effectively creating a new environment that we then have to further adapt to and Mm -hmm. i think that was a really really interesting uh way of of thinking about the evolution here uh, that, that i had not thought of before and you know as mentioned previously you you very much think about language in a evolutionary and developmental sort of framework in fact i think the original way i discovered your work was that as an undergrad, I was studying evolutionary developmental biology and thinking about how bodies are constructed, and then brains were constructed, and then I got interested in language and evolution. And so somewhere along those lines, I discovered you. For those, and and I think it's very powerful to have the sort of developmental perspective when thinking about this subject or or a number of others. If people are interested in that, I do have another episode that I did with Sean B. Carroll, who's uh, a famous Evo Devo biologist that I studied with. And so you can go check that out if you want to learn a little bit more about that stuff. But I want to continue talking about coevolution evolution and, and another, I think, developmental evolutionary concept. So at one point in one of the later chapters of the book, you get into a discussion about something called Baldwinian evolution. Which has to do with how behavior can affect evolution, and so how to what is that? What is Baldwinian evolution, and how does that tie into some of the things we were just discussing?
1: It's an interesting question. In part, what I want to say to begin with is that I don't think Baldwin had it right, um, and I think we still don't fully understand um, Baldwinian evolution. We assume that Baldwin got it right and did not, but let me sort of lay out the uh, the argument. It begins in the late 1890s. Uh, And this is a time when there's a very powerful set of debates going on between Lamarckian evolution, the acquired characters being passed on, acquired during your life being passed on somehow to the next generation, versus a kind of a Darwinian story that we often think about in which uh, those things that we learn and acquire during our lives um, are only passed on culturally or behaviorally, but not genetically, into the next generation. Um, so a number of people, uh, James Mark Baldwin, and in fact, two others at the same time, uh, came up with a, a response that said, maybe what we can do is think about a Darwinian process is not Lamarckian, but it produces kind of Lamarckian effects. And it works this way. Uh, the argument is that um, somehow you develop a plastic way of behaving. Uh, whereas the environment has changed, but by virtue of being flexible, you adapt to this, be- to this change in the environment. Those who are not flexible don't adapt, and they're eliminated. Now, you have adaptation specializations for the old environment, but you're just able to get by by your flexible behavior. Um, Baldwin and these other, argument- other theorists said, well, if that's true, then over time... There's going to be selection that favors those who have this plastic capacity. But because being flexible and plastic takes effort and there's trial and error, um, wouldn't there now be natural selection to favor it not being so flexible, not being just sort of um, plastic, but being more ineluctable, being automatic, more automatic? So the argument from Baldwin was that maybe behavioral plasticity uh, can become internalized. What was acquired at one point in time by sort of active participation and responding um, can look as though it becomes passed on genetically, not because it got passed on genetically, but but because those who did it more automatically and more easily were better at passing on their offspring passing on this capacity to their offspring. So it's not a direct inheritance of acquired characteristics, but an argument that said, if flexibility sets you up um, and there are costs to flexibility, um, that will create this new kinds of selection. Um, To some extent, this has been argued both by myself and others, Steven Pinker makes an argument similar to this about how he thinks that, for example, Uh, Grammar, Uh, this is a a, a theorist who thinks that universal grammar was sort of built into the brain, that we had this grammar device built in. And he argued that, well, maybe it was acquired initially by trial and error by learning, and then we just simply got better and better at it. We put more of the grammar into the brain until it's now just in the brain and we don't need to do much learning. Uh, I argued that, in fact, um, we need to not think about it in terms of something that's language specific. But that in fact, all the demands that language places on us for combinatorial learning, for suppressing certain associations compared to others, uh, for this kind of abstraction, uh, would in effect, those things would be selected early on, would be acquired with some effort, and would become better and better at it. So rather than something specific to language, my argument, which I made earlier in this discussion, is that many, many different aspects of neurological learning. Uh, and, and behavior, in a sense, would be affected this way and would just simply make us better. Subsequently, I think that there's problems with this argument. And uh, let me spell those out. And the main thing that we've discovered as more we've learned about genetics and how genes evolve in these contexts is that if something can be acquired plastically without having to sort of build it in, um, it oftentimes does the reverse. It oftentimes allows some genetic support to degrade. If it can be acquired by something outside that takes less work, we oftentimes, by a kind of a less work principle, I like to call it the lazy gene hypothesis, that, you know, genes only do what they need to do. And if it's supplied elsewhere, if you can get it from something else, give it up. My favorite example of this is our, ability, our need for vitamin C in our diet. Mm. Um, almost all other animals make their own vitamin C. Uh, it's just a primate somewhere beginning about 60 million years ago began eating fruit where there was a lot of it out there. Um, we actually still have a pseudogene, a non-functional gene for making the last enzyme that makes vitamin C.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it just doesn't work anymore. And it's degraded because this capacity could be acquired outside easier. Um, one of the problems with the Darwinian story is that it, that it basically says that if you don't have to do it yourself, oftentimes you lose the ability. You know, don't use it. You know, if you don't use it, you lose it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Baldwin story is not quite as helpful as I thought it was initially. Um, on the other hand, it's led me to believe that maybe some of the ab- advantages that we have in learning language actually might be the result of loss of function, of loss of specificity. And in fact, we've done some recent work um, using a bird example, a bird that is, by virtue of domestication has become a better singer, so to speak, um, because we think it's lost some of its capacity. It's lost some of its innate bias. And as a result of losing innate bias is able to acquire biases from the outside more easily. Hmm. And so one of the thoughts I had is that, that our human capacity is not just the result of adaptation that's produced more flex more capacity to be biased towards language, but maybe also a loss of specificity in some directions. So one of the classic examples of this is that chimpanzees have somewhere in the range of 20 to 30 distinct vocalizations that they give that refer to different aspects of their life that are built in. That is, they don't have to learn them. They're, They're there from birth. Um, having to do with threats, having to do with food, having to do with sexuality, having to do with solicitation of help, and that sort of thing. We have some innate vocalizations, too, that we acquire genetically. There's laughter, there's sobbing, there's groans, there's shrieks. Um, But I'm starting to run out of vocalizations. We human beings have a very small repertoire of these innate vocalizations surprisingly small compared to other primates. Uh, and I think one of the things that's happened is that they've degraded.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They've degraded in part because our linguistic communication can take it over. Mm-hmm. But this also carries me back to this notion of prosodic features of language. The fact that when I'm more excited, I'm talking faster with a higher frequency. This is also something that we find in primate calls. When they're more excited, they're also producing the same thing. Their calls become faster and a higher frequency. When um, uh, you're soliciting aid, you can tell uh, the vocalizations are more nasal, like this. Mm-hmm. Um, we human beings know what it means. Mm-hmm. And our vocalizations, our speech can be much more diminutive and, and demanding
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because what's happened is much of the You might say background, autonomic, and emotional side of it is still being communicated, but now it's subordinated to the language. It's a separate channel almost in which we can now actually have much more sophistication uh, because we can now adapt it to the the language use. So we have far fewer innate vocalizations, but a lot of the features of innate vocalizations have been carried forward and now, in a sense, uh, adapted to language
0: hmm So this sort of co-evolutionary dance happens, but it can only kick off after you ca- cross the so-called symbolic threshold, after the brain has evolved the capability of using symbols. And so I'm curious to get your speculation on when during primate evolution, when's the earliest in primate evolution you think we could have crossed the symbolic threshold? And given. Uh, what you described earlier about Kanzi, is it possible that it goes all the way back to the common ancestor with chimpanzees, or if not then, you know, shortly after that?
1: So what I want to use in this regard is is what empirical evidence might we even think about drawing? Obviously, languages or brains don't don't fossilize. The only thing that we can see from you know, about brains is that sometimes the cast of the inside of skulls give us a sense of how big the brain was, or mm-hmm. you know some s- trivial surface features. Um, but one of the things that, that happened in our evolution is that there was a transition about two million years ago, in which a number of things change at once. It's the point at which brain size compared to body size begins to diverge from what we find in our common ancestors. The australopithecines that preceded this had brain-size, body-size relationships, very much like chimpanzees. But by about 1.8 million years, we begin to see this depart. Brains begin to expand. They expand over the course of the next million and a half years, so that it's not until just a few hundred thousand years ago that we're seeing brain sizes like ours. But this transition also takes place at another point. Um, The first stone tools, that is chipped stones with sharpened edges, begin to show up in the fossil record about two and a half million years ago. Uh, They show up, they disappear, they show up, they disappear. But by 1.8 million years ago, we never find them separate from hominids, that is early precursors. So something is stabilized at this point in time. Now we see stone tools and slightly enlarged brains happening together. What are stone tools for? Well, they're for butchery. Um, They're not good yet for killing animals probably, but they're really good for sort of cutting up meat, taking chunks of meat away from other animals. The problem is that if you're not hunting and all you have is stone tools, you're not so good at catching these animals and eating them um, as as our cats, big cats or big Mm -hmm. dogs. You know, the, the predators that are out there, even the hyenas, and the wild dogs that are out there. You're not know, as good at it. Um, how are you going to get this? Well, first of all, it looks as though probably our early ancestors were scavengers. Mm-hmm. They stole. On the open
0: savannah.
1: Uh, and one the way to be a scavenger is to be able to go out and grab a little bit of this meat and then get away from these guys that are dangerous. Um, how might you do that? Well, you, you probably can't do it on your own. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do it on your own, that means you have to cooperate in some respect. So you now imagine the, the the problem of somebody is down there with his stone tool trying to cut off a limb with a little bit of meat on it, and there's a bunch of hungry hyenas surrounding you. Um, obviously, the last thing you want to do is to have your head down in the carcass uh, when these guys are closing in. You want somebody else out there chasing them away, mm-hmm. keeping holding them at bay. You got to cooperate. I think one of the things that happened in this transition is that there had to be and ability to create stable cooperation so that you could rely on each other in life and death kind of situations to get at a kind of food source that's remarkably powerful. A lot of calories, a lot of uh, nutrients that are not able to be attained in other other regards. Um, So I see this transition to um, a new kind of foraging that requires cooperation, requires passing on down this niche of tool making, but also requires a kind of communication that allows us to talk about things that that might happen, that could happen, that could happen in the future. That is, we've got to be able to get away from now the kind of immediacy that icons and index provides and deal with these these other questions. And I think it, it applies also to make choice and mate exclusion relationships. I think it's a much more systematic relationship. And this points to another thing that happens right at this time as well, that something called sexual dimorphism begins to disappear. Sexual dimorphism is that um, uh, in species where there's a lot of male-male competition for mates, males are oftentimes quite a bit bigger than females. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see this to be the case in baboons, for example, um, but there's a lot of competition where a single adult male or a few of small group of males will dominate uh, a, a group of females. Uh, we see this in, you know, elephant seals. We see it in lots of different species. Um, we also see it in the ancestors, our early ancestors, the australopithecines. The australopithecine males were probably two to three times larger than females on average as adults. We know this by looking at the size of mature bones, particular particularly mature uh, uh, jaws and maxilla, maxilla, where we can look at the teeth and say, these are mature teeth. And mm-hmm. notice that there's a sort of a bimodal distribution of sizes here.
0: What now, is we, the what is the ratio today?
1: The ratio is, is just a slight fraction. I can't tell you how, because I don't know the exact ratio. Mm-hmm. Men are slightly larger than women. But on average, there's a lot of overlap, number one. And it's certainly not two to one. It's a, a fraction of that. Uh, and that fraction shows up and is pretty much established by about one and a half million years ago. And that tells us that also the male-female relationships, the you might say the sexual competition has had to be modified. Um, mm-hmm. Where we see more monomorphism is we see a lot more male offspring care taking place. And oftentimes we see it associated with exclusive mating where there's not a lot of competition over mates because mating is separated off from the social group in some way or another. In fact, most monomorphic species, where monomorphic, I mean, by, by morphism means two different sizes, two different morphologies, monomorphism one size. Um, we see more monomorphic species being isolated pairs. The weirdness about our own ancestry is that here we are needing to cooperate but becoming monomorphic. It makes the human situation really unusual, simply looking at it in the context of other animal behavior. Um, Somebody else has described this as Deacon's paradox. Um, There's a paradox, we're the only real species that is mostly monomorphic, in which there's extensive male offspring care, in which there's relatively separated male-female bonding, but you don't find a lot of sort of crossing over. You do find cheating, of course. That that's something that we're very much aware of. Um, but it's something that we call cheating.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we recognize that it shouldn't be the way it's supposed to happen. Um, these are this normally happens in the rest of the world in isolated populations. Gibbons, for example, are pair bonded and monomorphic, but they are not in troops. They're in separate pairs. Mm. Um, in so- humans, we're we're in these large social groups that have to cooperate, were monomorphic for the most part. Um, males play a lot of role in offspring care, provide food and resources that females and babies might have difficulty getting at, chasing after meat, for example, not a very safe place to carry your babies to. Um, so division of labor may have already begun. So it's at this transition somewhere between two million or 2.5 million and 1.8 million years ago that there had to be a transition into this process because after about a million and a half years ago, all of these things always are coexisting. That is tool use, cooperative groups, larger brains, loss of sexual dimorphism. In fact, there's some other things that have happened as well um, that are interesting in all of this, but basically it says that somehow things have really changed. And it's at this point that we begin to see this takeoff where brain size begins to change radically over the next million and a half years. And we get sort of a modern situation. I think that what's happening here is that over that period of time, also this language-like communication, symbolic communication, is getting more and more sophisticated. Slowly, I think, also moving to the vocal-oral medium from more ritual-like medium.
0: So one of the things that's very interesting to speculate on is whether or not other forms of human that are now extinct had language or language like abilities and so I want to talk about Neanderthals for just a moment for a couple of reasons um, people are really interested in Neanderthals for obvious reasons I think everyone you know is intrigued by this idea that there's something very much like ourselves that that was walking around and 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 you know, directly adjacent to what we would otherwise call modern humans for quite a while. I have another episode with the anthropologist, John Hawks, if people are interested that he he goes into a lot of interesting stuff about Neanderthals and interbreeding and all of that. And I want to read a passage from the symbolic species where you talk about Neanderthals and their potential abilities, uh, cognitive abilities. One of the reasons I think this passage is striking is because you wrote this book almost 25 years ago. And to this day, you know, today my understanding is we, we really we don't know for certain if Neanderthals had the ability to do language or used language. But twenty-five years ago, most people, including most academics, I think, basically thought of Neanderthals as dumb human cousins. They were cave people and they were definitely not as smart as as smart as us, they certainly weren't speaking to each other. But given what you were talking about before about development and proportions and things, I thought this passage was interesting, and I'd like you to comment on it. You said that in neurological terms, it seems likely that Neanderthals were fully modern and are mental equals. They had a brain size slightly above modern values, slightly smaller stature, and so we can extrapolate that the internal proportions of the brain structures they had were consistent with a symbolic capacity equal to anatomically modern humans. So, do, is that is that the way you still think about it? And can you explain? Absolutely, on that all? Do. yes.
1: I think that I, I think that we, in part, because you know we wanted to think of Neanderthals as somehow on the way to us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, we have this sort of progress notion of human evolution. Um, in which, you know, we're at the top of the progress. We're the winners in the race. Um, I wanted to think about it in terms of the mechanisms. And this is why development of the brain, why allometry was important in my thinking about this, and why looking at this change in the relative size of the brain, beginning at about 1.8 million years ago, um, was important for my thinking about the problem. If Neanderthals, at the end of this, multi, you know, almost two million year epic, have a brain size like ours, a body size like ours, developmental process like ours. Um, There was no reason for me to think that their symbolic ability would be any less than ours. Um, So using those criteria, not some criterion about whether we won and they disappeared, or where they went extinct and we didn't, Um, whether they lived in caves, didn't have the same kind of tool sophistication that that anatomically modern humans living at about the same time had. Um, Using just those evolutionary, physiological, and developmental um, criteria, it seemed to me that we couldn't make that claim. Um, Interestingly enough, um, as the years have gone by, the the sort of general population of, of anthropologists and paleontologists have begun to sort of upgrade the Neanderthals, as you might say, um, recognizing that we had to interbreed with them, that we, that, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've learned that I have a little over 2% Neanderthal genes. I can even, I now have a list of which genes were the Neanderthal genes. They're in my genome that, you know, was provided by these services. Um, but one of the things that happened is that there was a period of time when we had just been looking... This is now back in the um, early 2000s in which this gene FOXP2 was associated uh, with a family who had damage to FOXP2 that had some serious articulatory problems. Uh, They had difficulties forming words. Their speech was hard to understand. They had articulatory problems. Um, and they had some problems with regularized verb endings, for example, regularized nouns So in English. And it was thought that, well, maybe this, this gene has something to do with, with syntax and grammar, and that maybe that's what makes humans uh, sophisticated and others not. Well, it turns out that um, when the Neanderthal genome was, sequ- was sequenced, it turns out that they also had this variant, and that this variant was distinct in Neanderthals and humans from before the point that they split. The Neanderthal-human split was probably somewhere in the range of three and a half to 500,000 years ago, long time ago. Mm -hmm. Now, if this articulatory capacity was there in Neanderthals, and it's an articulatory capacity that maybe other primates don't quite have, but we clearly do have. Um, it suggests that, in effect, that articulatory capacity was around maybe half a million half excuse me half half a million years ago, five hundred thousand years ago, before we split. Um, that Neanderthals were probably capable of this. I think the very fact that Neanderthals and humans did interact with each other, interbred with each other, um, suggests that probably they had their own culture and language. Uh, probably as sophisticated as ours. We've also identified subsequently that uh, a bone that was thought to be different in Neanderthals, the hyoid bone, this little um, horseshoe-like shaped bone at the very um, top of your larynx, bottom of your uh, throat, that sort of holds the larynx in place, um, suggests that it's also very much like our modern hyoid bone, which sort of showed that somehow our larynx, our vocal tract was not that radically different in Neanderthals and humans. So they were probably capable of producing the kinds of sounds that we could have produced as well. So for a lot of anatomical and evolutionary reasons, I had no reason to doubt that Neanderthals were our equals. Um, So it's sort of looking at the inside as opposed to the outside source of evidence.
0: So we've spent most of our time so far talking about the past, more or less. And I want to spend a little bit time talking about the future of language. Mm. And, you know, we'll give ourselves the liberty of, of just speculating. Um, we can do that.
2: That's all um, we can
0: do. I So I'm really interested in the relationship between technology and communication. I think most people are in some sense. You know, obviously, in our evolutionary history, there's been a relationship there. We sort of Talk, we were talking about stone tools and cooperation and how social structures and social relationships connect to tool making, connect to this ability to use symbols that we've evolved. I'm curious what you make of modern technology. So I'm thinking about social media apps. I'm thinking about the emoticons and all of the icons that we use more and more to communicate with each other and you know all of the apps that we have. So, and, and then again, connecting that to what we were talking about just a few minutes ago about this use it or lose it principle in evolution do you think it's possible in what ways do you think technology might impact the trajectory of human language evolution and more specifically do you think it's possible that our increased reliance on technology to offload our mnemonic strategies to offload like i don't need to remember numbers anymore my memory needs now are very different than they were when I was a child, for example. And do you think our increased use of iconographic modes of communication might actually degrade our ability to use symbolic representation?
1: It's an interesting question. First of all, for evolution of the nervous system to respond to this, we're talking about um, hundreds of generations. Uh, So yes, if, if this capacity persists for the next few thousand years, and I would say we probably got to go to 10,000 years, um, to have any really significant impact on the nervous system. Um, maybe, but you know, I don't think I can speculate a hundred years out, much less 10,000 years out, uh, much less a hundred thousand years out. So, so I don't know about I That's hard to say, but I like to think about something we know about in terms of this, what happened to written language mm. and how written language affected us. Um, uh, my favorite example comes from uh, Plato's Phaedrus, uh, in which Plato worries that writing is becoming available to the Greeks and written word is going to decrease human intellectual capacity. But somehow, now that we don't have to remember the, the, the great epics, um, then we can just look it up, we can just read it, somehow we'll become less intelligent in this process. Um, What's happened is, of course, not quite the same. Um, As we've been able to offload some of these memory capacities, um, we've gained other things that is in its place. And I think this has to do with the flexibility of of, of our capacities. Um, The other thing that I I think is interesting about particularly written language and all kinds of written forms, including written musical forms, um, is that to some extent, they have evolved as well. Many of the very earliest stages of written language um, are not phonetic languages. They're logographic languages. Um, That is, they picture what they refer to. Their semantics is iconic, but it's about symbols. Um, But in fact, to make them mnemonic, um, it's easy to have them look like something. The same is true with, with, you know, we have a lot of mnemonic supports even in languages artificial as it is. So, like words like pop, for example, uh, sound like things that are popping. Um, So, we do have a lot of mnemonics in this. Um, But one of the things that happened in written languages is that, particularly in the West, uh, beginning in the Middle East, um, we shifted quickly from languages written symbols or written Tokens, you might say, that showed their relationship to meaning iconically. There's a direct connection um, to symbols or tokens that stand for not things, but sounds of words. So shifting to um, these phonetic alphabets Hmm. from iconic alphabets suddenly made possible a very different way of thinking a very different way of doing things like mathematics, for example, because we can now make it out of letters. So you can compare, and people have done these comparisons with the Far East in populations that we're still using some degree of logographic writing systems. Um, I should say that, that all of those systems that we think about characters in Chinese and Japanese and Korean character systems um, do have some non-logographic features. Uh some sound features and so on associated with them. So they have they're not simple in that respect. Um but one of the things that that's happened is that that now our writing system is iconic of sound in a way that they were iconic of meaning. And that allowed us to sort of shift our way of storing information and transmitting information so that writing became something that was a little bit different. But it also meant that, whereas in China. If you can read characters, even if you can't understand somebody else's speech, you can write it and read it because it's directly linked to its reference, its meaning. Whereas I can't read Russian, Finnish, Swedish to make any sense of it, even though it's using many of the same um, sound characters. Um, What's happened is because it's iconic of sound, and the sounds of those languages have changed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, now they become mutually untranslatable. So there's this interest, interesting sort of divergence that's happened in the West and the East with respect to these ways in which writing has evolved. So, writing has evolved for certain purposes under certain selection. Uh, and we can learn a little bit about our future, I think, by looking at this, because uh, emojis are logographic. That is, they directly refer to something. Um, and yet we're now using them to refer, in a sense, in another indirect way. It's not quite the same. Uh, so I- I'm curious as to what's gonna happen with this. Um, but I- I th- I'm not sure exactly how to think about it, except in the following sense. One of the things that's happening by virtue of the internet is that um, we're offloading a lot of our knowledge mm-hmm. into this sort of public space. Now, that was always the case with language. That is, a language is not something that's inside of a person. It's picked up from the social group. It's passed in the social group. Um, it's a niche that we find ourselves into. We, we adapt. We take it in and pass it on. Um, so in one sense, I, I like to think of us as symbolically use social. Eusociality is a term that we use to talk about, for example, ants and honeybees. That is, they're so social, they can't exist outside of a social world uh, because their entire way of being depends upon the, the continuation of this social organization. But we're symbolically eusocial. Symbols are not able to be passed on intrinsically by genetics. This is why we don't have innate words. But as a result, we're symbolically social We have now blown this out of proportion uh, with these electronic media. We're so social not just in the languages we're using, but now in knowledge. You know, like you said, you don't know all the phone numbers of your friends. They're on your phone. Um, the problem is when we lose that our dependency on something extrinsic like that, um, we are now much weaker. We all know that if somehow there was a huge solar flare and pulse that wiped out all electronic communications, we'd be in serious trouble, mm-hmm. not just here in the United States, but around the world, uh, that, that we are now so dependent on this. This is suggesting that to some extent, we're much more a larger organism than single individuals. There's a kind of shift towards superorganism, as some people have described it, that's going on. In, in our future. Um, the question is, um, how much of that will we allow to take place? How much will artificial intelligence begin to do some of these things for us and help us sort of link together? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the question about what will happen to humanness um, has a lot to do with how we're going to more and more distribute our cognition into the world amongst each other and in, in, in our things. Mm-hmm. I do want
0: to ask you a little bit about artificial intelligence with respect to its current linguistic capabilities. So we certainly have forms of machine intelligence programs that we can make that are capable of parsing sentences and defining words and actually constructing sentences in you know, pretty, you know, relatively impressive. If you know, sometimes awkward ways, uh, GTP three is probably like the latest thing that's out there that people may have heard about. You can train it on some corpus of human text, and it can construct new sentences which are usually uh, fluent. They're technically fluent, but they're they're sort of awkward and funny in interesting ways. And it's clear that these systems don't quite have what you would call true fluency or true comprehension of of the language the same way that a human, even a human child does. So A, do you agree with that? And B, if so, what do you think is missing from the machine intelligence we have today that is preventing them from having that level of fluency?
1: So first of all, I would say that the machine intelligence we have today, even the best at this has no symbolic capacity, zero. Um, And how is it able to do what it does, if that's true? And I think the answer here is that you, we notice this because we have to feed it a huge corpus. Um, we have to give it lots and lots of sentences. What's happening is that it's, these systems are developing elaborate statistics of how words are related to each other. Remember that I, I described a sentence as a kind of diagram. A, a sentence has iconic and indexical relationships to each other inferences, for example, deduction. It's iconic and indexical in the sense that if all men are mortal, Socrates is a man. Well, there there are iconic features. There, I mentioned Socrates. I mentioned mortality. I mentioned men, and they're in a particular relationship with each other. I can use the iconicity to sort of make the guess that therefore, you know, Socrates is mortal. Um, there's iconicity and indexicality in the grammar and syntax of language. And to the extent that a large corpus has incorporated these iconic and indexical relations, the kind of things that are not just in the thesaurus and dictionary, but in encyclopedias, so to speak. Um, There's structure there. And these systems capture that structure and as a result can kick it back to us. But notice that what they're capturing is the iconic and indexical structure. What we would want to say is that they don't quite understand what they're saying. They don't know what they're saying. Um, And as a result, we'd say it's a, it's simulating language and it can answer questions that we might put to it because that structure is there in our question and it's there in the corpus that it has. On the other hand, a young child can acquire new words in a very short period of time. A lot of words at once with a very few occasions of hearing it being used. Uh, When we try to train a network to do this, we oftentimes need millions of utterances Mm -hmm. to do it right. And that's because it's acquiring it in a very different way. Children are going right to the symbols. The surface doesn't matter so much. In fact, if they don't get the syntax right, so what? They just want to communicate. They just want to understand. Um, And that's why They jump to the symbolic side of it as fast as they can um, and learn good grammar and syntax later. Good grammar and syntax, you know, it comes in as we go to school. And finally, when we have to learn to write, um, the problem with writing compared to speaking is that a lot of the clues we have for indexical and iconic features in speaking to each other is in a, a set of assumptions that we already set up that have been built up by our interactions already, and have been built up by interactions with others. In writing, um, we don't have that pragmatic context to rely on. So all the iconic and indexical cues that are extrinsic in speech and in one-to-one interactions um, have to be poured into the writing. Therefore, the writing has to be much more precise in its grammar and syntax. Uh, so when we look at you know transcribed speech, if you were to transcribe what we were talking about today, um, it would look very ungrammatical in lots of ways. Um, but if we were to then have to write it down, we want to correct it, fix it so it's not quite so ungrammatical. Um, why? Because if it's written, the clues aren't there, the cues aren't there. So in, in, in many respects, uh, there is this process that I would say in artificial intelligence. We precisely have not figured out how to create machine competence to interpret things symbolically. Hmm. Now, am I saying that it can't be done? Not. I think it could be done. But because we don't think about the problem in terms of icons, indices, and symbols, and the difference with that, having collapsed that all down to just this associational notion of words and meanings, we don't even think that it's necessary. We're building these devices without even thinking about the difference between iconic, indexical, and symbolic reference, so that we have these devices that produce things like speech. Understand? So I, you know, I ask Alexa to do things, uh, to turn on my lights and things like that, uh, to order things from Amazon uh, by speech, but There's nobody home on the other side. There's no symbolic interpretation. And so I think one of the excitements that I have about, you know, once we begin to rethink this problem this way, once we get below the level of the surface of just these correlations, um, we might be able to build very different ways of doing what we call today artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And in which case it probably wouldn't be artificial anymore.
0: I'm, you know, I'm thinking right now about, so you're saying that there's no symbolic representation present in these systems of artificial intelligence. You also just said in reference to your Alexa that no one's home. So I'm interested in your take on the relationship between language and symbolic thought and the idea of having a self and self-reflective consciousness. What do you think the relationship between language and self-reflective consciousness, the type of consciousness that we often uniquely associate with humans
1: actually is. Right. No, I think that's, that's a good way to think about it. Uh, It's not the consciousness question uh, because I have no doubt that I have dogs that are conscious and cats that are conscious and so on, but they clearly do not have this kind of what you described as self-reflective consciousness. Um, And I think one of the powers of symbols is that, um, We don't need symbols if I'm alone, if I'm alone in the desert island, never interaction with each other, because all of my experience is available to me. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't need to be translated into another mind that has a totally different experiential background. Um, Symbols are necessary to sort of do this translation from self to non-self, to take my experiences and make them available to you and vice versa. this process there needs to be sort of my experiences which are iconic and indexical have to be put in another form because you don't have the same icons and indices i do hmm. but that means that symbols are in effect in impersonal not only are they acquired from the society not only am i parasitic on my symbolic culture um but it it is now a medium of communication that is, in a sense, separated from me, displaced from me, from my experience. The result is, I think, because of our symbolic ability, we have this ability to have a distance from ourselves. I can, if I am saying these things, um, that it's not my thoughts. But in fact, they're my thoughts in the public.
2: Mm.
1: And that means I can now also begin to think about the public perspective on me. Hmm. What are the people thinking about me? Um, Why? Because I need to get, I want to get their knowledge in my head and I want to pass my knowledge on to other people's. I think actually, if you think about it, I I was just talking to somebody recently who has been studying chimpanzee communication and recognized that when one chimpanzee came from uh, a traumatic experience, separated from the group, coming in contact with another troop, came back and was now having to interact with its natal troop. Um, Very disturbed, very upset. There was no way that that chimpanzee could communicate that experience. What had happened to me? What's going on? What was my past like? That is, there was nothing that I I would say that, that philosophers have called intersubjectivity. There's was no ability to get in each other's heads, to know what experience we've had, what we were thinking, that we have this incredible capacity because language has allowed us, in a sense, this intermediary form of communication, of representation, that allows me to represent what I'm thinking to you and vice versa. Um, that we human beings are not just in ourselves, in our own experience, but we're in each other's experiences all the time. Hmm. And and in this sense, we're also a more distributed mind, a more distributed being, more distributed kind of consciousness, uh, I think is is very different than any other species. Uh, And and this goes back to work that even um, Vygotsky, back in the 1930s and 20s, was thinking about that children, when they mature and they acquire language, um, they begin to talk to themselves he suggested that one of the things that happens is that children can become their own parents. In a sense, their parents tell them to do certain things and to act certain ways. As they mature, they repeat these things back to themselves in their mind's eye, so to speak, their mind's ear. Um, And they sort of become people outside themselves communicating to themselves. So this is that reflective move. If we can now sort of understand this relationship from another perspective uh, that symbols have given us. It gives us perspective on ourselves. Unfortunately, it also gives us knowledge of our own impermanence. The fact that I wasn't around 50 years, uh, 500 years ago, that I won't be around 50 years from now. It gives us a bunch of knowledge that maybe I'd rather not have. If I was a dog, I'd feel, you know, less worried about this sort of thing. Uh, so symbols have given us this incredible gift of intersubjectivity that I think you know we see as one of the, one of the greatest qualities that we share uh, with each other that that other species lack, um, and I think it's responsible in part for our more moral and ethical traditions and so on being able to get out of ourselves, see ourselves from another perspective, and to get a sense of what other people are experiencing.
0: Hmm. So it sounds like you're saying that you know, this ability to use symbols is actually necessary to make self-other distinctions. And so do you think that anim- other animals that can pass the, you know, the mirror test, if you buy that as a measure of self, the ability to recognize self, does that mean that they must then have the ability to deal with symbols, even if it's not quite at the level we can?
1: Not not exactly. I, I, I do think that, that, first of all, having a little bit of, Sophistication with, um, you know, looking at reflections in water and so on probably has some role to play in all of this. Um, I try to try to put it in another sense that what we what we look at when I think about self reflection is what somebody else sees when they see me. What somebody else is thinking when they're getting my thoughts in words. It's the other's perspective that looking at me. Now, the question is, is that what um, the chimpanzee is getting if it recognizes a spot on its forehead? Um, Is it seeing that in terms of what another sees of me? Or is it seeing it simply as a reflection, like in a mirror mirror? or in water. Uh, One of my favorite examples of this actually comes from the Christian Bible, Um, Adam and Eve. I think that the apple that, that Adam bites and Eve bites is knowledge of symbols, is symbolic capacity. It's knowledge of good and evil. And one of the things that they do once they've awakened after eating the apple is they cover their private parts, Hmm. the fig leaf story, right? Um, They're suddenly aware of what the other person sees of them. So I think in a cryptic metaphoric sense, it's telling us that somehow Adam and Eve at this point cross this threshold. But it's not just knowledge of each other's bodies, knowledge of what another sees in them, but it's also knowledge of good and evil. I don't think there's knowledge of good and evil in other species because I think it requires this intersubjective capacity. Um, I think there's degrees of empathy possible. Why? Because we observe you know, the crying behavior, the screaming behavior of other species, and we experience it in ourselves. We know how it comes out of ourselves. I think there's a sort of a reflective empathy in that response. But the kind of empathy we say that this person is a good person or this person has done something evil, done, some, done something unkind. Um, now we're already into the realm of recognizing the importance of the intersubjectivity of it all. But that one of the reasons why we don't hold children responsible for some of these features is that they can't quite get into each other's minds, can't quite um, simulate the experience that they're causing in someone else. Um, why we don't hold uh, people in psychotic states responsible for making appropriate decisions like this, because they can't do that simulation well. But, But for normal people, we hold each other responsible for being able to do that kind of simulation. You hold me responsible for knowing something about what effect I'm having on your experience. And I hold you responsible for that. That piece of it, is where the sort of morality and ethics comes from. I think it's something that has to require symbols to begin with. Hmm.
0: I want to spend. We're not going to have time to really go as deep as we could into some of your other work, but I want to talk about the concept of emergence. So you know, we've talked about how language emerged in the human brain, and and you know that whole story is very interesting. But you have Sort of this other but very related body of work. Um, A lot of it is in this book called Incomplete Nature, where you dwell on how mind or how consciousness emerges from the brain. And you also talk about how life emerges from non life. And at first blush, one might not think those are directly connected, but you seem to think that they are connected. And so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the phenomenon of emergence. What does it mean for something to be an emergent phenomenon? And how do you, how do you connect the dots at a high level between things like the emergence of mind and the emergence of life?
1: All right. Well, you've obviously opened up a huge can of worms, um, and and I should say that the book you're referring to, uh, I apologize for its length, but it's well over 500 pages. Uh, so it's not an easy question, and it's a it's a question at the very foundations of modern science. I think uh, to understand this notion, one uh, of the Reasons I wrote the book. I actually started to write a book, mostly about the problem of consciousness. It was going to be titled Homunculus, um, as a kind of a tongue-in-cheek argument that there's no homunculus in the brain, um, but we need to explain the homuncular sense. We need to explain the agency and the feeling of self. Um, so, although there's no place in the brain that does it, um, somehow we need to explain how it comes about. Um, what I realized in working on this problem is that, in fact, we didn't even have that answer for life itself. Um, the sort of, you know, what makes a mind a mind as distinct from something else? Um, it's the same version of a problem of why life isn't just mechanism, why thinking isn't just computing. And what I realized is that until we can understand this sort of basic notion of what self is, Every organism has a sense that we would call self, not in terms of self consciousness, like we're talking about, but they're organized around the preservation of self. Even viruses, I can talk about viruses. Um, they're not alive in the sense that even a bacterium is alive, in a sense, but we know that they're organized around the persistence of themselves and the transmission of themselves. We know that. Um, Getting a vaccine is working against the virus self-interest, so to speak. Um, So there's a very, very primitive notion of self that we wouldn't ascribe to just chemistry. Viruses are not just chemicals. They're chemicals organized with respect to maintaining that organization, preserving that organization against being disrupted. and what I would describe, I used when I talked about ethics, there's a sort of broader term we call normativity. Norms are things in which you can be right or wrong, good or bad, correct or incorrect. Um, there is no good or bad chemistry. There's no right or wrong chemistry. Uh, there is no chemical reaction that is better than another chemical reaction unless it's in the service of something, usually with respect to something alive. But for a virus, there are good and bad environments. There are good and bad hosts. There are toxins that are bad for you. Um, even a virus, as simple as it is, has normative character. So the transition to life is a transition to something like the very basis of self and the very basis of normativity. How is it that there's a transition that looks like it's just a chemical transition. That something is at one point in time made up of molecules that have no normative character. And yet as a collection, the collection is normative. It has a self, it can repair itself if damaged. And a sense, it, the key is it's working against one of the most general features of the universe the increase of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. Um, all living things are organized in such a way that they're, in a sense, resisting this basic tendency of all of nature. And it maintains themselves, living things, of course maintain themselves on the surface of the earth for you know billions of years against this ubiquitous tendency for things to break down. Um, the organization that we call life has been this transition from non-normative to normative chemistry, from non-self to self. And now norms and self over the course of three and a half billion years have just gotten more and more complex and added level upon level upon level, minds and brains and consciousness and eventually symbolic communication are just one of these last layers in this process. So my argument the reason I wrote the book, in fact, was to say, look, we need to explain how normativity, how end-directedness, how self comes into the world at this very simplest basic level, if we want to have even a chance at making sense of it at the level of a mind. Uh, so that I, I decided that I had to sort of go back to the beginning and ask these very basic, you might say, philosophical questions almost. Um, about how this could happen what kind of a molecular system what is it about a molecular system that would show the crossing over from this one kind of form to another kind of form uh in which it has directedness to it um the term that's also associated with this philosophically and historically is teleology or purpose end directedness uh, an end is something that doesn't yet exist mm-hmm. But there are things that we do that are organized to achieve ends. Physical causality, chemistry is not trying to achieve ends. But all living things are. If for no other reason than just one of the ends is to keep from degrading, to keep from being eliminated. So what we're seeing is that in the origins of life is the the transition. It's not a a gradual and and slowly evolving thing. I think it's actually quite sudden and accidental, maybe to some extent, um, in which the organization itself becomes the critical thing, not the stuff. If you think about that in terms of you and I, um, the stuff that I was made of 50 years ago is gone. It's passed on. But the organization has had continuity. Um, from the beginning of the last universal common ancestor of all um, DNA and RNA-based life forms, um, there has been an organizational continuity that's been unbroken, unbroken. I'm linked to that by this unbroken chain of continuity of form. It's the form that's been maintained, the organization that's been maintained, even though the matter and energy has, been, has come and gone You know, trillions of times. So the question is, what kind of organization is it? Because it's not new matter, not new energy. It's new organization. How did new organization come into the world? In such that the organization, not the stuff, but the organization kept itself going. And this is why it oftentimes seems like it's a disembodied something. This is a material process. This is a chemical process. But it's the organization that was, you might say, it's got exchangeable matter and energy. Uh, In the same way that information that I'm producing with sound is being turned into electronic signals, popped into sound on your end, and maybe somebody will take some of this and turn it into text on a page at some point in time. In that process, the form has been maintained, the organization has been maintained, but the embodiment has changed. That feature that we associate with knowledge, with with information, is what life is about. And it begins very, very simply. The origins of life had to be very simple, and yet it had to do something radically different than the rest of chemistry and physics. So the origins of life question is so fascinating because it had to be ultra simple and ultra divergent from the rest of chemistry and physics. That's a kind of conundrum that just has got to draw us in, but unless we can answer that question satisfactorily, I don't think we have a shot at understanding things like consciousness.
0: Hmm. Well, we've been talking for almost three hours. I think this is going to be my longest episode so far. I want to thank you for your time. Um, so again, we spent most of our time talking about the book, The Symbolic Species, which is all about the origin of language. We sort of did a, a preview of Incomplete Nature here at the end. I would love to talk to you more about that stuff at some point. We could probably do another three-hour podcast if
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, possibly, yes.
0: If you're willing to suffer through it at some point. Um, thank you again for your time. Are there any thoughts that you want to leave people with? Or perhaps you know, The Symbolic Species was written... Almost twenty-five years ago, are there any? Um, are you working on anything new related to language, or are there any books or or thinkers out there that are working on this today that you might point point people to?
1: Ah, uh, there are some. Um, off the top of my head, it's going to be hard to sort of kick it out. Um, I would say that one of the things that I see happening now, and this does have to do with what links these two books together, is that we're beginning to realize that we can no longer think about life, mind, and computation for that matter um, in purely mechanistic terms. We're beginning to realize that we, although the enlightenment was a chance in which we tried to say everything could be explained mechanistically. We can get rid of teleology. We can get rid of end directedness. We can get rid of value talk and maybe Darwin gets rid of design, you know? And now we have this purely mechanistic universe. I think now that we've run into these problems with the origins of life, the nature of consciousness, and what our machines are capable of doing, we're now forced to realize that maybe we're gonna have to come back and deal with these questions that we thought we had overcome about meaning and value and teleology, about purpose. I think that's what the next century is going to be about, reintegrating purpose value teleology back into the sciences. And as soon as we do that, I think it's going to be a radical change because it's, in some sense, it's a figure background change in things. I like to think about what I did in the symbolic species and many things we've talked about as figure background shifts, looking not at the external, but looking at the internal processes, looking at not... The appearance of communication, but looking at the semiotics, looking at the referential, the hidden, the sort of the absent, not on the surface features of it, the referential side of it. You know, turn those questions upside down. Um, I think that a lot of what's happening these days is we're being forced to do figure background shifts. And this is also being generated by our, you know, advances in electronic media our advances in artificial intelligence is forcing us to ask these questions. Why is computing not like thinking? And why is thinking not like computing? We need to answer those questions. In fact, that's the subtitle or, or roughly the subtitle of a book that I'm working on now. Hmm.
0: Do you have a title yet?
1: Yes. It's its called, so I, I'm working on two, two books uh, and, and they're, they're related in, in two ways. The one that I just mentioned is called Beyond Bits, um, why brains don't compute and machines don't think. And it's it's an, it's an attempt to bring what was called information theory together with these theories of reference and semiotic reference uh, to try to create a formal theory of that. The other thing I'm working on is a book I'm almost finished with now. It's It's called Falling Up. The paradox of biological complexity. And it's an argument that says that the increased complexity in biology is actually a less is more problem. That in fact, things have gotten more complex, not because they've added more parts, but because in fact, they've simplified and they've become more dependent on each other. And this is forced complexity. We're sort of backing into, or falling up into complexity. And that I, I even think that the language story is explained this way. We haven't gone in this direction today, but, but that's where I'm going with this. Um, that we have to rethink the evolutionary process. That one way to think about it is, uh, I gave the example of vitamin C. Um, we've become dependent upon vitamin C. We're effectively um, addicted to dietary vitamin C, but simply because it's always been there. But because we have to eat vitamin C and find it, we primates develop three-color vision. We primates have developed taste cells that are responsive to sweet and sour in ways that other species are not. We've developed transporters for ascorbic acid in our blood that's associated with uh, glucose transporter molecules. Um, What's happened is that although we've lost one capacity as this one gene is degraded, we've now distributed selection on a whole variety of features in our bodies, that because this thing is now externally supplied, we have to adapt to that externalization. We've become much more complex in terms of, we've had to add all of these new features just to handle what degraded. Uh, So what's happened is something that was just handled by one thing is now handled by dozens of things. Uh, It's become more complex by virtue of having loss function, not just gain function. So it turns out that I've I've just been looking at lots of different features of evolution that we sometimes call major transitions or hierarchic transitions um, that I think are driven in most cases by a degrading feature that is is a kind of less is more argument.
0: Hmm. Well, Terrence Deacon, thank you for your time. Hopefully I'll be able to talk to you once you're, once you're about to release one of these new books and have a good rest of your day.
1: All right. Been wonderful. Uh, Great fun. I'm glad that we had this chance.